0: vacation now with your family yeah we're going to lanai oh that'll be fun yeah boom and we're live speaking of vacations tell me about guyana yeah that's a good Dude, segue you've been there a bunch you know I've How been there twice. Now? i thought it was three
1: no well, i was in no I, i've been to guyana twice but between there i went to bolivia oh and did like very similar very similar kind of trip like a like a Doing a river trip with Amerindians.
0: Are those people weirded out by Americans because of the Jonestown massacre thing? Is Dude, any- it's so
1: funny you bring up Jonestown because there's a couple things I've been like, uh, the, the So the, the the main group I was with in Guyana um, is the the, the Makushi. And I was surprised one day when I was, they make a dish. They make a dish with uh, cassava, which is a root, like, manioc. Um they make a dish with that. They make a flour from it and make a dish and I was one day saying that, Hey, that's a that looks like pizza. Right? No <laughs> like right. No comprehension, but like no thought of what pizza is. And I remember thinking like, wow man, like something you take like such a, you know, you just consider such a part of everyday life is pizza. They didn't
0: know what it was.
1: Yeah, and they don't know about Georgetown. Whoa. Even though it was in their own country. They don't know about it at all? No. No, it's just not. But yeah, like We'll get into this, but you got to like realize sort of how insular, you know, the Amerindian communities are, who live in the in the jungle in Guyana. Yeah, but,
0: did they have communication? All any? Cell yeah, they phones do. Or? Yeah, more
1: and more now. And there was a lot a lot changed the two times I went there, were through five or six years apart. They discovered sunglasses, and I remember the <laughs> first time I was down there trying to turn them on because, uh, you know, they they. They bow hunt for fish, right? Which is one of the main ways they get fish is bow hunting for fish. And when you're looking into the water, polarized lenses are invaluable. I feel lost without them yeah, trying to amazing. spot fish underwater. And I kept saying, "Man, you got to get on board with polarized sunglasses." And not handing to him, he, he he didn't like it. This guy roving. he didn't like anything about having them on his face. He just like couldn't do it. But then I go down there five years later and um, every one of those boys is rocking polarized glasses. <laughs> so you see changes. But yeah, that's the thing with, like, I've brought up Jonestown a number of times because in the U.S., if you say, hey, I'm going to Guyana, all anybody says is don't drink the Kool-Aid. Right. You
0: know, you and know it wasn't knows, like, it really Kool-Aid.
1: It was some, like, Kool-Aid, no. It was a Kool-Aid type drink. No. No. So when people look at, when I, we had this conversation, because there's a couple of things that are important here: what the poison was. Right. So we had a conversation. Let me back up. The the root. I mentioned they make a root. Cassava. Yeah. So there's a root cassava. And is that the the poisonous stuff? Yeah. So it's the root that gives all life. They eat. That's what they call it? No. But I mean, they eat fish and game, okay? River fish and wild game. And then that's like a staple that they eat every day. And the other thing they eat every day is. A half dozen things all produced from cassava which is kind of like a yam and it's cultivated with slash and burn agriculture and and they cultivate these yams and from it they make a flour. Um, they make a, a type of grain that's like couscous they make a syrup that's used as a coloring agent and a flavoring agent they make a non-alcoholic drink they make a somewhat alcoholic drink that would be like an equivalent to beer, and then they make a much more alcoholic drink, which would be an equivalent to like fortified wine. Wow. They make all this stuff from this, this root that they grow. Um, in its raw form, when you shred the root and squeeze the shredding, so it'd be like imagine you took a yam and shredded a yam and then squeezed the yam between your hands and dripped out a liquid. That liquid is deadly poisonous. Okay. Dogs, wow. chickens, people, anything that drinks that liquid dies. Jesus. And it's cyanide. So wow. the Jonestown Massacre uh, it was a cocktail of the best people think. That it was Kool-Aid, Flavor-Aid, Valium, and Potassium Cyanide. My question coming home from Ghana was, like, did they, was the cyanide... From the root, were they like doing homemade cyanide? But and so when I got home, I looked into this, and it and it seems as a, that that commune, Jonestown commune, had been ordering actual potassium cyanide, which is used in a number of mining practices and other stuff. So it's oh. it's an available it's an available compound, I'd and that's a- what they laced
0: the Kool Aid with. I'd heard about this cassava stuff. And what Do they know what the process is? Like, do they know, like, how people figured out how to make it non-poisonous? No. And how, wow, it's just been done so long?
1: I, it, yeah, and the same stuff with, like, different poisons they use to poison, that, that people use to poison fish. Um, what strikes me about it is how, in the village, like, the the the, the Makushi village I was in, um, is mostly Makushi, but there's also like Wapashana, which is another tribe. Carib is another tribe, but it's predominantly a Makushi village. And there's about 300 people that live in this village. Um, and how careless they are with the liquid. Like if you nowadays, like picture like you're like the type of person that like you and me are married to and raise kids with, right? If you, if you had that type of mom, and you had a big bowl of a liquid that would kill you if you drank a bit. How that bowl would be monitored in your household?
0: Jesus Christ. There'd be right? like barbed wire around it, electrical <laughs> fence. And
1: how but do they do it? this shit just
0: lays they out. They just
1: lay it out? And I said, I was asked this guy, Roman, I'm like, hey man, uh, I kept returning to this. There's certain things I, kept, I would always ask him, just like things that he struggled to understand my fixation on it. But I kept saying to... This Makushi guy, Rovan who—I should back up, to I got communication. So Guyana, it's the only English-speaking country in South America. Everyone the, the speaks. Go, it. No, no. The, the, the government functions are English. Uh. So if you, if you picture South America, it's northeast corner opening out onto the southern Caribbean. That's Guyana. It's bordered on the east by Suriname, on the west by Venezuela, to the south by Brazil— it's ninety percent virgin rainforest, wow. and within that ninety percent of virgin rainforest is only ten percent of the population. So the coastal peoples are like creole cultures, people mostly descended from slave trade Europeans. In the interior are the Amerindian groups, and um, the government functions. Sort of the power in in Guyana is that is the coastal peoples and there's not a ton of inter, and there used to be barely any interplay between the Amerindian communities and the government the government's english speaking so in you'll find that there's a lot of english mixed in in the Amerindian communities and some people like this guy Roven, because he's sort of a upping he, he's like a he has a leadership role in his community and he's learned just standard english very well Um, he's had a fascinating life just how much stuff has changed for him Uh, so you can just like converse okay in in a way that you can converse in like in a type of the type of english we're talking right now almost which creates this weird tension between the things that you're discussing and how you're discussing them like for instance to have a guy just in conversational English talking about problems they're having with neighboring shamans and their own shaman putting curses on each other. And it like creates like, (laughs) there's like a strange tension between like how it's being conveyed to you, you know? Like how so? Like, okay. If you're talking conversational English, I guess like a, a life, it's almost like you'd want it to be when he's telling you this, you'd almost want to be reading it in like closed caption. And he'd be saying it in the indigenous language, because it sounds weird to have to, to have an idea that's so foreign to us, which would be like a battle of shamans battling over access to wild animals. Okay, um, to have that delivered in conversational English just struck me as unusual. And because the- like usually when you're traveling, you're getting all of your information. Like traveling in Bolivia, a guy would tell a story, and he'd tell a story in. Um, Simshian no what am I saying not Simshian Chimane okay he'd tell a story in Chimane to a person who spoke Spanish the person who speaks Spanish would tell it to a person no 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 a Chimane <laughs> guy telling someone who speaks Chimane in Spanish then that person telling it to a person who speaks Spanish and English and then that person giving you the information whoa When you get it, it, through that, it takes on a mystical quality, like you're crossing some space-time thing, right? Right. You're seeing, like, these ideas discussed in their ancestral tongue, okay? Yeah. Do you remember I sent you a video of a guy talking about killing a jaguar? Yes. Right? The language, you've never, like, when he's speaking, you're like, I've never, in all my travels, I've never heard a language that sounds anything like that.
0: Is the video online? Can we play? Yeah, it? Yeah, it's online. What, what do you know the title of it?
1: It's. Uh, I think if you type in like um, Chimane T S I Chimane um, Jaguar see Attack, if, see if Jamie can you, find you'll, you'll pull it
0: up. It's very cool. The language is really amazing. So it seems so ancient. Yes. It's not like, has nothing to do with like the Latin languages. It just sounds so, it's very
1: unique. So I guess what I'm getting at is to hear someone talking about something in conversational English that seems so far removed from just our understanding of things, it takes on a weird quality. But what's nice about it is you can go to a place where life is so vastly different than anything we understand and and just get like the straight dope right from the source. Right. is why I love... It's kind of like what's so cool about Guyana because you can go and converse with with people who are are very much a hunter-gatherer culture today, but just shoot the shit with them without ever feeling like you're missing something. Wow. It's it's like everything's not lost in translation and all weird and garbled and, and like painstaking to wade through, but you can just ask. Like, hey, what's up with the local shaman? Well, I'll give you the dope on the local shaman. <laughs> <laughs> and so they trade spells? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll talk about that. But I, I, I feel like I was laying the groundwork for uh, the Jim Jones poison. Did you find the video? No, I lost the word that you were spelling. T-S-I-M-A-N-E.
0: T-S-I-M-A-N-E. What does that mean? Chimane. That's how they spell it? I could, be, I, could, I could be screwing up. You know how you, you, you
1: spell a lot worse when you're not actually writing it out?
0: Yeah, I'm terrible.
1: Oh, I don't know oh, how anybody man.
0: wins a spelling bee ever. Mm. Is Chumani is T S I?
1: Yeah, so if you type in Chumane Jaguar, T S I M A N E Jaguar. Wow. The whole thing is an Amerindian hunter remembers his best dog lost to a jaguar in the jungles of it. Bolivia. Cool.
0: All right, here we go. Let's play this because it's fucking awesome. Here we go. So. Following is an interview with a member of the Chumani tribe of Bolivia. Due to their inherent difficulties of translating indigenous languages, subtitles are at times approximate.
2: Wow. So he's explaining
0: where he's from, he's saying he hunts for food, I always share the meat I get with my family, I'm a good provider of meat, he's cutting up the meat in this video, I also enjoy the adventure, I love trekking through the jungle,
2: once I was hunting with my favorite dog and a couple other dogs.
0: They ran ahead, barking. They were going after something. All of a sudden, my favorite dog just went completely
2: silent.
0: They were about 50 meters ahead of me. When I got there, the other dogs had gone ahead after something.
2: Saying my favorite dog was lying there dead. There was a big hole in its right
0: side. Almost looked like it had been arrowed. The First thing I did Is pick up my dog And set him where the ants Wouldn't get to his body That dog was the bravest one I had
2: I'm not gonna translate anymore You guys should just watch the video yeah. If you're
0: interested But you get a sense of How cool it is So Did we cover the, Did we fully cover the poison thing? No, not really
1: So we, I got home Yeah, so it wasn't the same poison But Jim Jones He grew up in like a. He he was involved in a Pentecostal church. He's involved in the Methodist church. Then he kind of became a healer and started his own cult. It was funny. I was reading about him when I was trying to figure out the poison. I was reading about how he was kind of ahead of his time because the Jim Jones massacre was 1979, in uh, 78 or 79. And one thing that got him sideways with with his church was that he wanted to have an interracial service. And that caused friction in his church at the time, earlier in his career, and he moved out to the Bay Area and started this church. And then he got like kind of paranoid and thought that his congregants shouldn't be engaging in sexual activities, but he had he was siring illegitimate children left and right. They go down to Guyana, go out to the jungle, you know, there's a thousand of them down there. People in the U.S. from the Bay Area are kind of like wondering what happened to their loved ones. They send a congressman down there to try to figure out what's going on he shows up with a bunch of cameras the congressman says you know he's like i'm gonna help anyone who wants to go back to the bay area go back to the bay area he goes to the airstrip there's a shootout the congress the u.s congressman gets killed in the shootout and then they just all start killing themselves with the poison and firearms and other shit 270 some kids over 900 people yeah, I remember it. It's like the defining thing. But then, yeah, when you talk to these boys, I'm like, you know, Georgetown, like the Jonestown or, the, you know, the, the Jim Jones, Jonestown Massacre, never drink the Kool-Aid. They're like, no.
0: <laughs> See, I'd
1: heard it was it was budget Kool-Aid. No, it, that's a some debate. Some of it was. And, I, and, and that's a debate. <laughs> and in trying to find, like, in trying to, like, dig around and find the source of the cyanide, which became very important to me to learn for some reason, um... No, and I think Kool Aid even tried to distance himself from that's it. Probably it was Kool Aid, but, but they, oh, they there's like some archival stuff, and I guess in this archival stuff, images like footage taken around and photographs around, people have found out that they had both Flavor Aid and
0: <laughs> Kool Aid on hand. That's hilarious. What it was Kool Aid propaganda that's trying to pass the buck on the Flavor Aid. So
1: yeah, no no thing there. And if you so so if you go up the main river that drains uh, the main river that drains guyana is the essequibo and if you go way up the essequibo and um, you you'll get to a in a stream that comes in from there called the rupununi and you go up the rupununi and then you get to the Riwa. and at the mouth of the Riwa in rupununi is Riwa village and in Riwa village you're uh, isolated enough where you don't know about 900 Americans and, and some other people from other areas, nine, you know, dying in a mass suicide.
0: Wow. That's that's Around the time you were born. That's fascinating. That it's, well, it makes sense, though, that they're just so removed from it. Yeah. Do they, um, do they use agriculture? Like, how are they getting this cassava? They grow peppers, and then they grow the cassava.
1: And the cassava, like, it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, you, you know, we always hear about slash and burn agriculture. So they'll... They'll go in and do a slash and burn in a spot out in the jungle. Um, But it's like a a recycled sort of slash and burn agriculture. And and I'll break down what that means. So they'll go into an area and slash everything and burn it just to clear the, just so sunlight can make it through to the ground. So they chop the jungle down and burn everything. Then the cassava, like I said, looks like big yams. When you grow it, you just take a stalk of an existing plant. And just bury that stalk in the ground, and it'll sprout up a new crop. And so, you know, you're close to the equator, so you don't have seasons as much. There's some seasonal variation. They do have times, they do have like their wet season and dry season, but it's like you always get about the same amount of darkness as daylight, and they don't have the wild fluctuations that we have in the temperate zone. So they can grow year-round. And they stage it so you know you have a crop that's coming in, you have a crop that'll be coming in in three months, you have a crop that'll be coming in in six months, you have a crop that'll be coming in nine months. And once you get a certain number of cycles, I can't remember how many cycles you get off a piece of ground, you let the ground go feral, give it a few years, and then come in and burn it again. Also, intermittently, every time you plant cassava, you before you replant, you make a little fire and burn some debris in that same spot. No irrigation. You're not watering it at all. Um, and that's the only fertilizer you're giving it is you're burning some of the surrounding just detritus scraped up from the jungle floor that you burn there and grow it. And it is a staple of life. That in a river fish and game.
0: It's just such a wild thing that it's such a poisonous plant.
1: I don't get it. I don't get it. There's other stuff that there's other poisons that are extracted um, like people that people that, people in South America in the jungles people that use blow darts so people that hunt with blow guns it's generally understood like e- even talking to even talking to the Mikushi who hunt with bows and arrows i asked him, like why don't you guys hunt with blow darts blow guns and he explained to me we don't need to cuz we have arrow plant which gives arrows now if you were in this other area you know more up in the mountains and there's no arrow plant then you'd hunt with a blow dart. So is
0: arrow plant just a plant that makes like a shaft? Like makes the arrow. What? What is it? Do you, what is the? It's actual... a type.
1: It's like a cane. Huh. What, you know what it looks? It looks. It looks like a. It looks like a palm, and the palm leaf puts out these long pieces. And when one of those is ready, you you cut it green, and then they can make an arrow in no time. So you go out in the jungle, find this piece, and you know, like like like, a, you know, like one of the theories on how we domesticated plant species would be that it was a very gradual unintentional domestication where you would go out let me just take something simple like let's say you eat a lot of raspberries okay you go out and you gather raspberries and you bring them home and you eat them near home and then people are eating these seeds and shitting these seeds out and pretty soon there's a lot more raspberries growing around your home village just for the simple fact that you're always bringing the seeds home and discarding them around and and creating it. So they have, except for Maniac, which people don't even really, I don't think it's really well understood what it came from. It's been domesticated for a long time. All the plants they use are widely available in the jungle, but tend to also have some around home too, that they've brought home and planted nearby or they just grow up there now because they've been bringing this stuff into their village for so long. So arrow plant is readily available. Um, They cut the arrow shaft green, and it looks like just a green dowel, but it has some curvature to it. Then they'll come home and they start a fire, and they heat the green thing just by twirling it over over the embers or over the flame. Twirling it and getting it hot, and it'll let off a little steam, and then you bend it. And then you twirl it and get it hot and bend it, and you'll eventually make it, well, arrow straight. Then, the they, they make four different kinds of arrows depending on what they're hunting for. So let's say you were making an arrow to, uh, it, it gets you more. So let's say you're making a big game arrow. All right, in um, the big game they hunt would be red brocket deer, white lip peccary which is a favorite. Um, collared peccary, which we call javelina, and sometimes tapir. The, the, the arrow they use for that, so they would take that, so let's say they're going to build one of those. So they take that green shaft and straighten it. The next step is they find a wood called bullet wood, and they cut what would be like uh, w- what's going to form the base of your tip, the base of your spear. And that bullet wood, they fit into the end of the green shaft, which is almost like a, it's almost a picture of having the consistency of bamboo. And they shove that bullet wood in there, and it, causes, it forms like a base. And to that, they take an old machete blade that they cut out and file down to be about a four-inch steel knife. And that goes into the bullet wood to, to, that forms the junction between the arrow shaft and the steel piece. That's the only man-made material they use in their arrows. Then they take a plant that looks like yucca, and they make their own string, and they got little bits of rubber from rubber trees that they wax the string with, and they put a bullet wood knock in the part that, that, your, that your bow string actually pushes on, and that gets tied in to the arrow shaft. And then they fletch the arrow with feathers from guan, or black curacao or crestless curacao. And that's what they fletch their arrows with because they have they're very water resistant.
0: So their broadheads are made out of machete blades. Yeah. And this is this a recent innovation. Yeah, for they them? used to use wood. And how long have they been doing it with machete blades?
1: In his lifetime, it's always been they don't call them machete, they call them cutlasses. In Rovin's lifetime, Rovin's 32. He's a kind of my main friend down there that I hung out with both times I was down there. In his lifetime, he remembers people using. He remembers people using wood blades which is made from like a bamboo like material so it'd be like a convex spear point cut out of bamboo and sharpened he remembers people using those but he had always used cutlass blades
0: Hmm. wow
1: now in bolivia you'd see people who have who are just using the the old form there are other arrows when they make arrows for hunting birds and they make arrows for hunting fish. The only man-made material on those arrows is hog wire fencing. So basically wire fencing, they snip out the hunks of wire, smash it down till it's flat, and then they can cut barbs in there to hunt birds and hunt fish. Wow. The bow is it's not a laminate bow. So they make a bow by just cutting a tree, single piece, a single stem tree, shaving it down to what they're after. And then take that same yucca plant, pull out the fibers out of the yucca strands, and make bowstrings. That goes very quickly as well. Like we made a bowstring one day. Wow. Yeah, you just they they they, you take the strands and twist them. Like imagine like you're rubbing your hands to warm them up. You got all those strands in your hands, and you roll them, and it makes singles. And it makes strands that are comprised of you know a dozen fibers. Then you start braiding up from there until you braid up a big long bowstring. And that's how you string your bow.
0: So when they're shooting their bow, like what's a long shot for them? Like fifteen. Twenty yards is a long shot. Long shot. And
1: the length of shot you're gonna take sort of depends on um kind of depends on well, they don't really think like the idea that you like that you're gonna wound it and it's gonna get away doesn't weigh on them very heavily. Right? Like in our culture, in our hunting culture here, we've come to like really uh The wound loss is something we do a lot to avoid. Okay. There's a lot of talk. We're always talking about don't, you know, you shouldn't be surprised to get a good hit. You should know what's going to happen. Don't take shots that are too far away, right? We really put a strong value on um, when you let the arrow go or when you let the bullet go, you damn sure know that you're going to have a quick, clean kill. At least we, we put a lot of value on that. In practice, sometimes that stuff goes out the window, but anyone would say that that's your goal. Um, not on their mind. You see them take some Hail Marys, right? And they can shoot, like, if you're, just, if you're trying to shoot a bird, all they're trying to do is get a wire point. So one of those arrows I described fitted with a long wire on the end, cut out of a piece of steel fence with a barb, with a couple barbs filed into it. And that head is joined by string to the arrow shaft so that once the head makes contact, the arrow shaft can fall away. But there's a string connecting the arrowhead, the wire barb, to the arrow shaft, and that allows it to tangle up up in the trees. So when they shoot, all they really need to do is prick that thing with that wire barb, knowing that the bird, or they hunt for a large aquatic rodents, knowing that the bird is going to get tangled up in the trees overhead and that they can then climb up to go get it. Even then, I think, even shooting like that kind of thing, where you're just trying to prick the thing, 30 yards would be very long. Shooting fish, you're not shooting that. I mean, shooting fish, you're not really, like, bow fishing, which I've done a lot of in my life, a 10-yard bow fishing shot is very far.
0: Yeah, you're right above them, right?
1: Yeah, because you're shooting down in the water.
0: Now, do they have, do you have to judge when you're shooting into the water, you have to... Judge differently, right? There's a refraction. Unless that thing, unless
1: that fish is
0: sunning, um, unless that fish is sunning
1: and its back is at the surface or breaking the surface, uh, you need to account for refraction. So you're aiming way low. Now, if you got a fish that's a fish two feet below the water surface, is extremely hard to hit because it's so deep. You're aiming like you're aiming at your boot. Like I mean, well, I mean it feels like that. You know, you're aiming so low. There's a there's an equation. It's always low. You're aiming way below the fish because of refraction. Like anyone who's ever taken a fishing pole and stuck it in the water, right? Right. You see the yeah, yeah. It hooks. So that's like, that's like the trick of bow fishing. But where they bow fish, for some of the stuff, my favorite thing to bow fish down there um, is also you're also dealing with current. And they're, again, they're shooting a hollow arrow that doesn't weigh shit. It doesn't cut through the water at all. So they're holding way low for refraction and holding way upstream. Because their arrow is so buoyant. Oh, wow. Now, an an American bow fishing rig, which I shoot, has a fiberglass arrow. So the current isn't as much of an issue because that arrow is so heavy that it can cut through the water. But refraction is the same. So that's why uh, a point-blank shot bow fishing is still very difficult. And then you got to factor that you still need to hit the thing pretty good in a place where the arrow is not going to pop out. There's a fish they bow hunt for that they used to bow hunt for for salted fish called the arapaima, and arapaima is the biggest freshwater fish in the world. Um, they used to, bigger than a sturgeon. Yeah, the largest freshwater fish. How the largest. Okay, the largest scaled. Yeah, an arapaima is the largest scaled freshwater fish. How big is it? Oh, I mean, they'll get them up into the hundreds of pounds.
0: I've never even heard of it. It arapaima. looks like
1: it, it's it's. How it's do you spell scale it? strip a r a p a i m a. Oh my god! Yeah, that's an arapaima. Jesus Christ! That looks completely prehistoric. They have a bizarre relationship with these fish, in the Makushi do in Whoa. Guyana. So,
0: that's amazing. What they an used amazing to hunt them. Looking
1: critter. They used to hunt them to export the salted meat. They used to hunt them to sell salted meat to markets. Okay, now. Uh, one of those is worth seven thousand dollars to them alive. Holy shit! Because that's how much that's how much a white guy will pay to catch one and let it go.
0: Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, they, so it's all a guy about, will like, pay guides. more.
1: A guy will pay more. The Makushi will make more to take a guy out to catch an arapaima and let it go than what you'd pay to hunt for elk in the U.S. on a guided trip. Holy shit! They get seven grand to catch an arapaima, and when Rovin was a kid, they would go on. Two-week hunting trips where they're gone for two weeks with their father. They would go for two weeks to hunt saltfish. So they were, it, they were operating out of dugout canoes that they would have to paddle. And they would, paddle a, they would make a dugout canoe themselves, paddle the dugout canoe upriver for a week to get to the good hunting and fishing grounds. Then they would hunt and fish for one week until they would get 100 pounds of salted fish. Then you'd go back downriver, which would take a day or two days, and then get to the mouth of the Rupununi River and paddle up the Rupununi River for two days to another town. And then they would haul the salt fish, including arapaima flesh, and sell that 100 pounds of salted fish for 75 US dollars. So two weeks plus work for a family for $75. And now they will not touch those fish because they make a handful of people every year go down and give them seven grand to catch one and let it go.
0: So seven grand to them must be just an enormous yeah, It's fortune. changed everything.
1: When I was wow. talking about like that they discovered sunglasses and shit, there's been a lot like they were already on to this Arapaima thing the first thing I went down and it's, it's changed everything about, it's changed that village, the Arapaima fishery. The way they used to hunt Arapaima is they would hunt them out of trees. They would, so you're familiar, like when a river, you know a river flows in an S pattern, yeah. like repeating S's. Now and then, um, during high water, a river will jump one of the S's. You've pictured what I'm saying? Yes. So the river jumps an S, and it abandons, in the main channel abandons the curves of the S. Okay. Those curves become what's called Oxbow Lakes where during high water, during a flood, those oxbow lakes are connected to the main river system. When the water goes low, the oxbow lakes become uh, isolated. Arapaimas live in those oxbow lakes, and they feed on peacock bass and other stuff. So when the water got low, and the arapaimas were all kind of restricted to very small little spots in the river, they would climb up in trees overlooking these places— and wait for the arapaima to come up near the surface and shoot it with an arrow that was a detachable, basically a harpoon head arrow, and shoot it with the arrow. The harpoon head would detach from the arrow, and the arrow would float on the surface connected by string to the arrow shaft. You would then go take a hand line with a hook and follow that fish in your dugout canoe until you could cast your hook out and catch your arrow. And then you're connected by your fishing line to your arrow. And your arrow is connected by the tether to the harpoon head. And you would hand line in and slaughter the arapaima. Jesus. And then dry the arapaima with salt. And they and they still have salt fish today. Like, when we're out fishing, they're salting fish all the time. They would salt that fish and then sell it. And then that became an indent like that became like a, a a very threatened species under that thing. And the other thing that they would hunt for is they would hunt for giant river turtles and sell the meat and um, greatly depleted because their whole lives occur on this one river. And once those market influences came in and they had moved beyond subsistence hunting and fishing and they moved into market hunting and fishing, they did with the same thing that we did to our own country in the late 1800s and early 1900s, is they were on course to entirely deplete their resource through market demands because their village gets more and more people all the time. It grew considerably in the five or six years between my two visits. And um, their environment just couldn't support that level of market hunting. So this arapaima thing kind of is giving, gives them a way to make money, to, to buy staples and run a school and stuff like that. It gives them kind of an out. And it's funny because, like, uh, I'm a lot more interested, like, personally. I'm a lot more interested in a guy shooting fish out of a tree and salting the meat than I am a dude like me going down to catch an arapaima and let it go. So, in some ways, it's sad. Yeah. It's sad just because, like... It's not. Sad. It's great that they're saving the fishery, but you see, like, just it's just sad to see shit change, man.
0: And why do they let it go? Why don't they give it to the people that live there so they could use it for the meat? Do they let it go so they can catch it again because mm-hmm. they want to make sure that the population stays yeah. healthy. So, Roven,
1: what? Here's the thing that recently happened. One of those Oxbow Lakes, uh, got lower and lower and lower, and someone real one of their got one of these Makushi guys realized there's 26 Arapaima stranded in an Oxbow Lake. And the is running out of water. And when the water goes down, the arapaima will excavate. He'll keep excavating in the bottom to even just save a little spot for himself. Okay? And a guy found them, and they're all in there, but there's not enough water to, to cover them up. They can sip air is the thing that makes them peculiar. So you can always wow. find arapaima because they come up to gulp air. Jesus. Yeah, so they, they can roll, breathe air, and yeah, they, they can roll, also roll, breathe with they gills. They have a very loud noise they make when they come up to gulp air. So they can live in low-oxygen environments. Like, if you took most fish and threw them in a stagnant oxbow that's got six inches of water in it, I mean, they're dead as shit, right? right. But these Arapimas, they can just keep excavating a little spot in the bottom and just wait praying, or their equivalent of praying, that the water level comes back up and liberates them from... The oxbow. They're stuck And these in. are huge fish. Yeah, giants. So they found twenty six that were out of the water, and their backs were all messed up from birds and other predators grabbing the arap- trying to grab the arapaimas. Wow. And then they went and spent four days. These are twenty six arapaimas between fifty inches and upper eighties in length. They spent four days moving these twenty six arapaimas into the river. In a canoe full of water. Jesus Christ. That's how valuable those fish are to them now. Wow. In the old days, they would have been dead as shit, right? And right. you'd be in like, you just sold them.
0: Yeah. So, so they, they realize it's just like a
1: finite, they have like on their river, the river that they call home, the river they kind of control, there's like a finite resource. But the thing is, other groups, so they're mostly Makushi. and my friend Rovin's Um His wife is Wapashana. And there are other Wapashanas in other places who will come down to hunt their area. And they have very different, like these other groups that come in have different hunting practices. Like Rovin was telling me one time that he was going up. So like the largest snake in the world is a green anaconda. The, their river has the largest thing in the alligator family, which is a black caiman. Some people say, oh, it's not a true alligator, but the largest member of that. How big Familia. Black caiman. Yeah, they get big, you know. They they get bigger, like American alligator, big, like fifteen oh, yeah. feet. Yeah, yeah, they get giants. Some wow. black caimans do. There used to be a market for those. They used to market hunt those for the hides, for bags, boots, and shit. So they have the giant river otter, which is a river otter, like way that you know up, you know, river otters get up to a hundred pounds. They have the biggest snake, the green anaconda. They have the largest aquatic rodent in the world, the largest freshwater scaled fish, by some definitions. The largest eagle which is the harpy eagle the Philippine eagle has a bigger wingspan but some, like when you measure them by weight the harpy from there and then there's another harpy that's a giant like the Papuan the Papua New Guinea harpy the yeah.
0: harpy is that one that eats sloths and monkeys Eats monkeys
1: and shit yeah eats, fucking eats crazy. Sloths, monkeys, some bad we saw one really so I'd been down in harpy country three times and finally saw my first harpy
0: wow yeah
1: just like it's majestic like, just piercing, kind of unforgettable. Um, just the face on it, the, the male, the male face. You're looking at it; it just is like, a, so it, it reminded me of the first time I saw lynx where you're just looking at it, and it just so freakishly different than anything you'd looked at, like that harpy's face. So it they is. have that. Um, oh, so he's going up the river. He's telling me this story how the Wapashana will come down and hunt, and they hunt different than the Makushi. Like, the Makushi aren't that big on killing tapirs, but the Wapashana will come down in their area. And he says they come down with arrows that got 12 inch steel tips on them. He's like, You know, those boys are hunting tapirs. But he said one time he was going up river and he sees a green anaconda. And he goes to look, and it's got an arrowhead stuck into it. And he said, And I told my companion, the Wapashana are here and they go up the river a little bit. and Of course they come to a Wapashana camp because the Wapashana he said, he's like talking about this particular, there's Wapashanas all the over, but he's like this particular group of Wapashanas that travel ahead of Christmas. Cause he's they're They're like, they have animist, you know, mystical systems, but they also, it's also infused with a certain level of Christianity. So, Ahead of Christmas, the Wapashana will go on a couple-month-long hunting trip to get food for Christmas celebrations. Whoa. And they'll travel overland and by river to come down and hunt the Makushi River. And when they come down, they're there. They're playing for keeps. So they come down, they're hunting Arapaima, which, these, which the Rewa Makushi do not. Uh, they're hunting anacondas. They hunt everything.
0: They eat the anacondas
1: yeah they dry all that shit and the fat they like to render the fat down because they feel that it is helpful for um they feel that it's helpful for arthritis we pulled up on a on a we pulled up on an anaconda one time that was 13 or 14 feet long just sitting on the bank you can walk up you can walk right up to it rovin was telling me um again a type of, like mysticism i mean we have our own beliefs that would seem absurd right to an outside perspective but he was telling me, if I were to touch that anaconda with my bow, it would die—a a very painful death. If I just laid my bow limb on it, and i go, "How long?" He, says, he he thought about telling me in about 45 minutes. Just the belief they have—if you touch it with a hunting bow, it will die in 45 minutes, but it's painful. How bizarre. No, I asked about that a thousand times and never got any more clarity on it than that. I said, can you touch it with a stick? Oh, that doesn't matter. Go ahead. (laughs) Touch it with a bowl, it will die. So, But yeah, they don't eat them. But he was telling me, if you're really hard up and have really bad arthritis, you can take the fat from an anaconda and help cure the arthritis.
0: How much fat does an anaconda have? I don't don't know. I never cut cut into one. I've seen a rattlesnake skinned. They seem like they don't have any fat.
1: You got to understand how big these things are, though. They're so big. I mean, way bigger than your leg.
0: Yeah. What it's is, 14 feet long. 14 feet long. It probably weighs hundreds of pounds, right? Oh, yeah. No, hundreds of pounds. Have you eaten rattlesnake? Yeah. It's not bad, right? It's, it's not bad, chewy. but... Look at the size of that sucker. Yeah, there's there's a good one. Jesus. Yeah, that's a heavy fucker. Yeah. Look at those guys struggling. Four dudes struggling. Oh, that's out of Guyana. Did you ever see that movie with Jennifer Lopez? Nope a giant one like
1: yeah so that's the biggest snake and uh they'll eat caimans
0: anacondas, well yeah yeah and
1: Jesus. then caimans eat them when they're younger yeah you know it's a vicious amount of everything eating everything
0: um so these these gentlemen the Makushi come yeah. down no the wapashana. the wapashana come yeah, down and have
1: different hunting practices and different things that are acceptable to eat and they have, and this is like a group of Wapashana So, is who this come where from the an area where the hunting and fishing sucks are going after each other? No, that was a different story. Okay,
0: now, <laughs> it's, no, it's a, it's a different
1: piss match with someone else. So, um, so area I, I don't want to do. Sucks. I, I, what's that? Their hunting area sucks. The, this group of Wapashana that come down to rape and pillage on the Rewa, uh, yeah. Robin explained to me their hunting area is a piss poor hunting area. So why do they stay there? I don't know. I don't know why they stay there. Hmm. Um, and I asked him, like, does it, got, does it make you guys mad that they come down? Because now, the, like, the people in Rewa Village, the, the predominantly Makushi Rewa Village, um, is on to a, 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 they're on to, like, a pretty progressive conservation program. Like, they can just, they, through their market hunting practices, they got a glimpse into the future and didn't like what they saw. And they're on a pretty aggressive program about sustainability um, their eyes toward the future the wapashana are this group of wapashana are not and when i asked them does it piss you off that the wapashana come down here and, oh they also the wapashana fish with poison the Makushi don't fish with poison
0: do they use the poison from the cassava
1: no they use a poison they use a uh there's a root and a leaf that are both poisons the root It's a thing used here in the United States when they have to do a fish kill. Like, if you get a big population of invasive fish in a waterway, and you just need to, like, wipe the whole thing clean. Yeah, shit like that. When you're trying to do a fish kill, we in the U.S. use a thing called rotanon. It's derived from a South American plant. And then there's another plant called Barbasco. Well, some people, some, you know, it's like different people in different areas. In the Amazon drainage, there's a thing they call Barbasco. And that is a leaf that you just pulp. And it would look like you're just like taking, if you just imagine if you took a bunch of thyme or rosemary and put it in a mortar and pestle and pulped it, and then you take and spread that in the water, that'll kill fish. Both of the, I think they kind of, they act in two separate ways. There's two types of fish poison. One inhibits the fish's ability to pull oxygen from the water. So I watched them apply this poison. And you need to get an area where there's not much current because it'll just wash the poison away. So you get into one of these oxbow lakes, apply the poison, kick back twenty minutes, and pretty soon all the fish are up gulping at the surface, and then you shoot them with bows and arrows. Wow! Um, and
0: what's the other way of doing it? And
1: rotenon, and I can't remember which category rotenon falls in, but there's another one that has some kind of like is some kind of neuro effect. It has some kind of brain. It somehow impairs some other aspect of their body but these fish poisons are classed in two categories I'm sorry I'm not more clear on That's what true. the two are but I know that the the ones that just that prevent it from being able to get air and the other ones that the poison
0: them the ones that don't suffocate them does that come up when they eat it
1: no but they were telling me that that um if that you need to watch your if you're poisoning a pond you need to watch it and make sure dogs or any livestock don't come down. It doesn't last long. And they were telling me, usually the fish you don't shoot will recover if there's some amount of water flowing through it. So they might go in and build a temporary dam to block whatever inlet. Let's just say it's an it's a isolated channel off to the side of a river. They'll go in and pretty carefully with rocks and logs block the flow coming into it, poison it, and then once they've gotten whatever they want, they unblock it and let the clean water come in and it'll resuscitate the fish. Whoa. But yeah, if, if they said of livestock, dogs, people drink that water it can kill that. It can kill that. How thing.
0: many, do they lose people every year to that cassava water,
1: man? And talking to me, you realize they lose, there's like a handful of things that people get lost to. Um, they had mentioned people dying from anacondas. They'd mentioned people dying from black caimans. Um, I know that, Injuries from piranhas are common. Snake bite in, just snakes are everywhere. It, it, like, in, in one of these, I remember we were sitting in Rovin's friend's house, his outdoor like a palapa kind of house, you know, with hammocks strung in it. And they're just being a giant tarantula, like a two and a half inch diameter tarantula. And um not even doing anything to it.
0: Well, tarantulas, they just hurt. Yeah, they hurt. They don't really fuck you up like a black widow or something along those lines. Yeah, and before right?
1: we found a kid who'd been hit by a scorpion, a young kid, and um, some scorpions can be fatal. He was vomiting, he was very sick, but just a fact of life.
0: So when they get bit by snakes, uh, are they getting bit by poisonous snakes?
1: Yeah, there's one, I think the most dead, the deadliest snake in the Western Hemisphere, the coral they have. Yeah. Um, they have other ones. He mentioned their chief getting hit by a by a venomous snake and them having to call a medevac which is not in the air force. i think the air force came in with a helicopter oh wow and got him out of there and he was fine wow just a fact of life. It, that shit's everywhere man but they got an eye for it and you don't like like you're like you guys you know the the non-local is always the one getting stung and bit and shit
0: yeah, I can only imagine.
1: Like the first time I was down there, I got hit by an electric eel a couple of times, right? That scared the shit out of me. But it's like, you don't even know what's happening. You're in the water, and all of a sudden, you're kind of getting like electrocuted. They're just more in tune with all that stuff. That's a
0: strong blast. Yeah, too. it hurts. We had those on Fear Factor. People oh, you did? To grab them. It's like grabbing yeah. a barbed It's like grabbing a hot, it's a crazy. hot wire. I, it's amazing that an animal or a living thing can generate that kind of electricity. So you charge. just did it voluntarily. For a joke, just to see what it's like. Yeah. Not fun. No, I was shocked. Yeah, it's I was like, it's probably just annoying. But I, I reached in and grabbed it. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Like, That's legit. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like grabbing a, a hot wire fence Yeah. with cattle in it. Yeah, I watched, um, there was some sort of a nature documentary where something tried to eat it. And uh, the electrical eel zapped it. And you see this animal just lock up and fall over sideways. Oh, really? Yeah. It just, Repelled it. Yeah, Just. just completely electrocuted it yeah you know got it to the point where it just couldn't stand up have you
1: i know, I know you like uh you'll pull up some stuff have you seen the video of the jaguar killing the caiman yes yeah. i've seen a bunch of that them. that's solid shit right <laughs> amazing. there amazing because you can sense he's done that a thousand oh, times yeah. man
0: there's a there's quite a few of them online uh and here's what's what's fascinating what is this a caiman with an electric eel
2: an alligator and electric eel oh wow and it starts just Frying.
0: Yeah, it's just cooking them. Oh really? Them. Yeah. Wow. No, that's not oh you asked about eating snakes. Electric eel
1: meat is not good. That's one of the many things that the that's one of the many
0: things the Makushi like do not eat. Look at his body just twitching. God, that's amazing. And obviously that's a little alligator. But still, boy. What a crazy animal. Yeah, it's brutal. I I never saw anything about jaguars killing caimans until about three or four years ago. And then there's like a whole slew of these videos coming yeah. out. This makes you wonder. I guess maybe the advent of GoPros and all these different video cameras that people take down there and finally started catching it on film. Yep. We missed the sighting
1: by, we missed the sighting, you know, narrowly missed the sighting when we were down there. Tracks are everywhere. So particularly because the time I was just down there now, um, the giant river turtles are nesting. So they, just like how we have, you know, just how you picture sea turtles crawl up onto a sandy beach and dig a hole that night and lay their eggs and then retreat back into the ocean. Um, giant river turtles lay like that. But, so the sandbars are covered in busted turtle shells, and there are vultures, so like black vultures and king vultures, and caracaras are on the sandbars feeding on turtle eggs. And... Jaguar tracks all over because the jaguars come down to wait for the turtles to come up. Wow! So you're seeing a lot of that. And one of the more surreal—that's <clears throat> yeah, a perspective shot, but I bet they're pretty big, right? Big, but that's that's the oceanic. That's not a giant. Jagu- whoa! whoa turtle. Look
0: at that sucker. So, how old is that fucker? I have no idea. God, those—they—they they live hundreds of years, right? Yeah,
1: they're—they're they're I mean, ancient.
0: That thing might have been around when Columbus was around.
1: They, you know, the the. Are you familiar with the CITES Treaty? So, uh, things that ban international wildlife traffic. They have, there's a couple turtles that the Makushi eat. Um, they traditionally ate giant river turtles, and many people still do. But they call that one the CITES turtle. Oh, wow. Because they now know they can't traffic in this turtle anymore. So, they got like the eating turtle and the CITES turtle. But an image will be forever burned in my uh, mind. There's two things that that. There's two like sites that will forever be stuck in my mind, and one of them is a, a Wapashana woman in a, DK, a DKNY t-shirt <laughs> up to her armpit in a riverbank digging out 150 turtle eggs, giant river turtle, turtle eggs, putting them in a handmade woven basket. Wow. Because, you know, like clo- like donated clothes, like cast off, clothes wind up, you know, getting bundled. So you see people with like crazy American t-shirts and stuff on. Where like I have like a Bob's Pizza of Santa Cruz, California or whatever, you know, and it's just like something sent down there through Goodwill donation centers or whatever. So they'll have like um like brands, you know? Like like famous brands that you see like people, you know, in our in our culture wearing, but they'll be all like hunting monkeys in them. <laughs> 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 and like the language thing, it creates that kind of tension, you know.
0: So do they recognize the CITES like, regulations? Do they do they not eat those turtles? Yeah. So you gather
1: it's kind of loose. Um, they don't traffic in them. But they will eat them. But they will eat them.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So they will collect the eggs, but they won't kill the turtles to sell. So as they become more aware of conservation, like with this giant fish, what's the fish called again? The Arapaima. As they become more aware of conservation, do you, do you see them like recognizing, like, hey, there's some stuff that we have to leave alone, we've got to let it recover? I mean, they, they obviously they're aware of the cycle of life when it comes to their slash-and-burn agriculture and leaving spots alone. Like, Are they becoming more aware of like what animals they've kind of pushed to the brink of extinction?
1: Yeah, and it's like, I don't even know how much is coming from the younger generation, because talking to guys talking to a guy who's, I'm 43, this guy just a couple years older than I am, and talking to him, um, and he was a market hunter. He's glad to see what's happened because he, in his own lifetime, saw how much they had depleted everything. So he, in his lifetime, saw like, from market hunting, not just from subsistence stuff, but as that village grew, because the village was a handful of families, right? Then now it's 305 people. As that village grew... He watched um, the giant river otters. They were hunting giant river otters to sell the hides into Brazil. And um, they would smoke them out of their dens. So he watched their numbers go down. This is a
0: hundred pound otter. Yeah. Wow.
1: Freaking giants, just as the name would let you know. And very vocal. A large vocabulary of crazy sounds that giant river otters make. They get When they see you, they're pissed, and they start making crazy Did noises. Do you see them? Oh, yeah. You see them all the time. And they're
0: squawking at you? Yeah. Like, what does it sound like? It's like a, like a, wow. but a lot better than that. Look at that sucker.
1: Oh, there he is eating some kind of snake or eel. Wow. Yeah. They make, they have an alarm noise and a number of barks and crazy sounds. Uh, so he watched those get depleted from hide hunting, giant river turtles from hunting eggs. He said that he could see that the Arapaimas were disappearing. And so he was really glad Um, This guy was really glad that they'd gotten on to some other way to bring some cash into the village.
0: Wow. And the arapaima fishing, how did they find out about this? Like people from the United States or like where are they coming from?
1: You know, I'm not sure. You know, I I know that there's been a number of companies. um, Costa, you know, the sunglasses company. Mm -hmm. Costa invested pretty heavily through a conservation program they have. Costa Sunglasses invested pretty heavily in... Helping them establish a guiding system down there to take people out to fish arapaima.
0: So these people that come down and
1: trained some of the Makushi and how to just deal with Westerners, like for instance, um, in the time and, and we were out. Just we were out. When I'm with them on the river, we're out. I'm with them participating in the hunting and fishing activities that they do year round. On the things that they identify to be sustainable resources, because they still like they still hunt several days a week, right? Roven, they, they live off fishing game. Everyone in that village, all their protein is hunting and fishing protein, and some chickens that they raise. But that's all their protein. So they're engaged in a, in a daily sense, like Roven says he spends about two days a week farming. He spends two or three days a week hunting and fishing. And then he has other obligations he has to take care of. But he hunts and fishes constantly year round, and it just—if he kills a white lip peccary, he says that's good for a week.
0: Did you bring your bow?
1: Yeah, I brought my bow fishing bow, and I brought a regular bow.
0: Now, when they saw your bow, were they like, "Jesus, can you get us some of these?" You know, surprisingly,
1: not that excited about it because they—I think that they know they would run up against sourcing problems with the arrows. Roven and got a—at one point in time, Roven had a recurve. Um. But he lost it. His house burnt down, and he lost his recurve anyways. So just for the simple fact that you can make them and make arrows very quickly, they don't need to worry about how you ever source parts.
0: Right, but they have all this other stuff like machete blades and all these different things. It seems like they would—I mean, if you could get a good compound bow, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think if you brought one down
1: and left it there, um I think if you brought one down and left there, it would get a lot of use. Yeah, well,
0: und- it, Absolutely. Would it be too effective? Like— Would they run into problems with, you know, like they have kind of a sustainability issue, right?
1: I'll I'll say, yeah. I think that if you went down, um, this is speculation. I would think if you went down and gave, if you went down with a dozen of these things and left them there, um, I think that along that river corridor, you would see a diminishment of a handful of bird species for sure.
0: Yeah, I would think because that...
1: the b- birds but here's the thing. Here's why it's a little bit tricky. Cuz I think that you would also be reducing demand because one of the things about the birds, the guans and curassows is that they want them to fletch arrows, but they're hard to get. So, they really want them cuz they like to, they they classify them under this broad category that you hear in other places called poeys. And basically, it's like edible, like a, a, a term. Some people say poies refers to a specific curacao, but some people use poies like like a, like turkey, like bird, like a turkey, meaning a, a good edible bird. So the birds that they fletch arrows with are also coveted food items. All right, I would, I feel that yeah. If you were to bring conventional archery tackle in you would see that diminish. Now, other people will have shotguns, but the limiting factor there is how expensive the ammunition is. So they'll have, like, the shotgun shell. Mm. Or they might have a handful of shotgun shells that would last them a long time because they would only use one absolutely necessary. Like the Villa, they've been having a Jaguar problem. When we were there, they had over the previous two months, lost 24 dogs, including a dog while we were there, to a jaguar who comes in at night and kills dogs and chickens. Whoa. He was speculating that at some point in time they'll probably have to get rid of that jaguar and that it would be a firearm issue they would have to like figure out a solution for with a firearm. So even people that might have a firearm um, have limited ammunition and it's sort of a a a a a, a, le- a a tricky spot in a legal situation for them to have a firearm, but bows. I think that they would knock the shit out of curassows and guans if they had good bows, but then might not hunt them as heavily because they didn't need the fletching. For fishing, I think their tackle superior, close to superior for bow fishing. Why is that? Um, because the shots are so close, it just isn't really necessary. Like it's like it's not. It's just not necessary to have that kind of investment and. You just tend to lose arrows bow fishing, so it wouldn't make sense to have very expensive fiberglass arrows when you can make an arrow in fifteen minutes, twenty minutes.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And then you're still limited to very close range shots. Um, The like when I was in Bolivia, where they hunt for a bigger variety of stuff, including monkeys, uh, bows would be a game like like compound bows would be a real game changer on monkey hunting.
0: So they're not monkey hunting, and they won't
1: touch them. Really? That, that, here's, there's a couple of things that are really hard to talk. Earlier I was saying like, you have this luxury of being able to have like, good conversations in English and get your, ans- your questions answered. Right. Some things you really uh, you hit a wall. Okay? Now, one of the things you hit a wall on is if you say to someone, like, how many days out of the year would you guess you do X? It's just like you never get there. You never get there. Do
0: they not understand years?
1: No, they do, but it's just like, because we speak in that way, it's hard for me to understand why that's such a hard question, but you, it would be very hard to get satisfactory answers about how often do you do something? Another thing is if like, how much do you like, like, do you like hunting or fishing more? Isn't something that's thought about. Cause it'd be like, I'd be like, do you like to hunt more or farm
0: more? You have to do both. So it's not like the luxury that we have. Like, but of what recreation. do you like?
1: But I don't. You have to do both. You can't just do one.
0: But but he was telling you he hunts two days a week. He farms two days a week. So but you yeah, got but seven that was after me
1: like asking the same question a thousand <laughs> times and finally kind of getting, finally kind of getting to a spot because they contradict. Because one time I pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. How many days a year do you hunt and fish? And we talked about this for forever. And he came up with the figure maybe two hundred or two hundred and fifty. Then, later, I'm like, how many days a week do you hunt and fish? And I asked them that a thousand times and got two. Now, if you do the math, one of those numbers is wrong. <laughs> it's just not. And also, like, what you like most. Do you like this most, like that most? Another thing is, why don't you eat X? Right. But, if I think about it, if, imagine if someone came from another country to here, and you're driving them around, and every single thing they see that's alive If they said to you, why don't you eat that? Right. Why don't you eat that spider? Right. I don't know, bro. We just don't eat those spiders. Why don't you eat that cat? That's a really complicated question. Like, uh, we don't eat house cats. Let me count the reasons why we don't eat house cats. You know? So when I'm like, why don't you eat monkeys? He's not like, oh, silly. We don't eat monkeys because it's just like, we just don't eat monkeys.
0: But they don't have any weird relationship with monkeys, right? No, they're and not the pets. more I press
1: him on it, it wound up being he would say because we have so many fish and they're so easy to get. Uh, but you hunt white-lipped peccary.
0: Now, white-lipped peccary, for folks who don't know, and does that look like a javelina as well?
1: Yeah, so it's, so it's a little bit bigger look? than the javelina. The main difference from from a human a human perspective looking on the two, what you would what what you would jump at is the gregarious nature of the white lip peccary so there's three peccaries there's like the chacoan, i think the chacoan peccary which i've never laid eyes on white lips and in collard and the collard peccary a dozen is a giant group of collard peccary that's like a big ass group of collard peccary and that's what we have Look at in that sucker yeah and that's what we have in west texas arizona parts of New Mexico, right? So it's essentially the same thing as a javelina? But the collared peccary is the javelina. Ah. Same exact thing. The white-lip peccary, now remember I said like a dozen is a bunch right. of collards. Havelina. I've hunted those in the U.S. and I've hunted those in, in Mexico. White-lip peccary will run in a group of 100 to 200. Whoa. And white-lip peccaries, when I was mentioning cassava, white-lip peccaries are hell on cassava patches. They eat them. They come in and eat the stalks, not the root. They'll destroy the cassava patch, and they'll dig. But they particularly like to eat the. They'll come in and they like to eat the young shoots growing up.
0: Now, can they eat the cassava, the root, or is it poisonous to them as don't well? Don't know. I don't know.
1: Huh? Um, that's a good question. Though I wish I would ask that. That would, if I had a week, I would get a satisfactory <laughs> answer out of that. So, the white Peccaries will come into the village, and raise holy hell. Everyone run and grabs their bows. And then they start shooting, and then they'll chase them into the jungle, and maybe even track them for a day, trying to whittle away at them because it's it's a great meat. It's like the favorite game meat is white lip peccary. They like it better than collared peccary because hmm. they're bigger.
0: But is it like a pork, like something like that? Well, they yeah, but they have the like scent
1: it. gland, so they're very yeah. Right. Looks like pork has a very strong off-putting. The animal has a very strong off-putting smell, but the meat doesn't. No, if you handle it properly and keep it clean, it's never, it would never be regarded like as as good as pork to the American palate. But to the Makushi palate, it's the best. Hmm. So their whole thing, like, we don't hunt all these animals, various animals because we have so many fish, flies out the window with white-lip peccary. But a lot of the white-lip peccary hunting is also related to the protecting of crops. Now, as long as Roven can remember, Rewa Village has had a group of white-lipped peccaries that would come through the area trying to raid the gardens. And when it came through the area raiding the gardens, they would kill some number of them. And then they would track them into the jungle and stick with them and kill a handful. And it was when that happened, it was a very good thing. They liked the peccaries. There's been a number of years where no Peccaries, or something happened to this group of one or two hundred Peccaries. They haven't, for years, they have not been through the village. It's not attrition, because he was saying, at the most, when we get, when they come through and get us, he would say, on average, we would get, actually kill between one and four when they come in and hit the crops if we stick with them and a group of guys goes after them we might kill between one and four and there's 200 of them so it's like it's not like they like slowly whittled away at them right they just would never account for that but they vanished Robin never wanted to explain to me why they vanished but I kept pestering about it and eventually he told me here's the deal since Rewa Village is now so wealthy and we have so much food Other groups and other villages have grown very jealous of us. And he told me that a shaman in another village got so insanely jealous of Rewa's prosperity through fishing for Arapaima and through all the good hunting and fishing that they have. He got so jealous that he um, locked up that this shaman locked up their peccaries he doesn't know where perhaps in the mountains they're locked up now getting them out is getting them unlocked is difficult because at the time that this shaman locked up their peccaries they happen to be without a good shaman in their village
0: did they have a bad shaman
1: yeah they have a shaman in training his his he is a young shaman in training and his powers are slow to develop
0: so what happened to the old guy
1: don't know (laughs) this guy's powers have been slow to develop (laughs) he's getting there and soon he will hopefully be in a position to unlock the peccaries
0: now what's a young shaman is it like a young president? You no, know, I don't know. I didn't meet like,
1: him. I didn't meet him. Oh, wow. He doesn't really like... We brought up wanting to go talk to him. Um, Got the sense that that wasn't the best idea to go visit with him. Really? Yeah, got like only sense. 300 people in the village? 305. Wow. Got got and, and I brought up a number of times, just got the sense that it wasn't the greatest idea to go talk
0: to him. So is there theatrics involved? This guy like living on the outskirts of town and putting no, he, more he, paint I know on that he lives it. in town. But he now, just claims mystery yeah he, like, so
1: here's a handful of things that was said like Robin was telling me and 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 I want to say man uh, I do not like if I'm here okay if you told me something that I thought was outlandish I would fucking jump on you right and I'd be like that's ridiculous right now that desire to like be right and to dispel uh, wrongness like I don't have a lick of that shit When I'm talking to these guys. Right. Right. I'm never like, well, I don't buy that. Right. (laughs) It's just like it's so inappropriate. Right. Feeling. Right. And it's so interesting to me. And also gives such an interesting glimpse into how most cultures and societies were structured long time ago in pre Christian times. Right. That it's just like it's just educational. So I'm not in any way, I'm never saying like, well, I don't buy that. I'm just saying, like, oh, okay. Right. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, so Magic. Yeah, so Lock I'm not in any way, I, I'm never like, but here's some things that were explained to me. If you're having a problem where you're, your archery skills go downhill, like you have a few misses, the way to correct that would be to go up and take the hand that holds the bowstring and punch a beehive. And then hold your hand up to that hive because they don't miss. <laughs> and you will find you will they will demonstrate their accuracy when they bombard you and rovin was saying that most of them even know to hit you between your fingers where it really hurts you will then absorb that accuracy in your hand and you will do a lot better shooting huh and the more you can do this throughout your life the stronger it will make you it's also helpful Just even with kids and other things, it's also helpful to be hit by, like, a bullet ant, for instance. Um, I had that happen to me before, and it's awful, but to get hit by a bullet ant to absorb some of that ant strength. But this shaman that fucked up their peccaries could also just be jealous of you and and strip your ability to shoot accurately. And what these. I I, I want to point out that Rovan has an email address.
0: Right. Wow. Yeah, you can email. I email with him. Wow, and he's firm in his beliefs. Yep. But also, also, yeah. But he's also rational. It's. He seems fairly rational outside of this. Listen, it's like I'm
1: torn even talking about it because, like, I don't want to. Like, I'm torn talking about it because, because I have such a a, um, a love for him as a person. Uh, that I wouldn't want to say that it would make that would like dispel that idea of like that 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 he that he's not like that he's not perfectly rational. Like I would go anywhere with this guy. Extremely capable, but you're talking about just like some some
0: long held belief systems. So their cultural belief systems are just deeply ingrained, yeah. and there's probably some sort of a placebo effect attached to all this, where I'm sure. they've seen it in effect. Yeah, where someone has cast. What is a... There's a some point in time those those peckers are going to come back into town. Yeah, and, and then what? Where will credit fall? They'll probably say the shaman is relaxed. His like, grip. awesome. Or They're maybe back. the new shaman. Yeah, or someone wants to take out. credit.
1: It's just a way of explaining the volatility. Here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. Like, like you know, you could go. Well, let me give you an example. I'm going to make a point about the way um, to sort of see a culture in transition, right? Because it's always so relative, but. Uh, the, there's a there's a staff writer at the New Yorker, one of, my, one of my favorite journalists of all time, John Lee Anderson. You might be familiar with his book, Che. Like he wrote sort of the definitive Che Guevara book, Che. Um, he's a war correspondent, writes in troubled spots around the country, or around the world, John Lee Anderson. He wrote a piece not long ago in the New Yorker about a group of people that had just made, that were were making first contact with the outside world just recently, 2015. Uh, They had been, they were were initially regarded as an uncontacted group that lived in the border between Peru and Brazil in the jungle. And for whatever reason, they started coming out to a main river where they were having some contact with other groups and they killed a couple of people with bows. So the government was in a situation of, When dealing with a first contact group, you can't go in and just start putting people on trial and shit. Like, it only leads to more problems. So they were trying to—it's an article about the difficulties of leading, of of introducing a first contact peoples into sort of a constructive engagement with the outside world. Um, A trick there is some people look and and they have—some countries have a policy of isolation for uncontacted people and try to enforce— isolation other theorists on this or other anthropologists think that that's completely unfair that it's the most human of tendencies is to find other humans and swap ideas with them right it's like it's you it would be laughable that i would come to you and say, Joe, I'd like to prevent you from meeting the French, lest some <laughs> aspect of Frenchness rub off on you. Right. Now, they're worried about other things, too, but they're worried about like disease and stuff, but also a tendency to, to, that al- alcohol can be destructive, being lured into prostitution. All, all forms of exploitation, trying to protect people from this. Well, isn't there so,
0: also the romance of running into these uncontacted tribes? I that to cherish people say.
1: that. Some people, yeah. So you, some you've people seen say those that.
0: photos that they took from the helicopter where they see these people, they're covered in war paint, they're pointing arrows at the helicopters. Yeah. It's amazing.
1: And that's the shit that I'm guilty of. Right. Because even though, th- that's why I was going to lead up this thing where th- this battle I have in my own mind, right? That even though, I mean, they are. Far, far away. They're, you know, far, far removed from the first contact people. They're not even, like I said, the guy's got an email address. I'm not trying to paint this right. as something it's not. Right. But at the same time, they make their bows from raw material out in the jungle and hunt and fish for all their protein. I love that shit so much. And I like laying in bed. Even if you told me you can never go back, I want to lay in bed thinking about that occurring. Right? Mm. I want to lay in bed thinking about a guy having a problem with his shaman. Because it's just so refreshing and like 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 mentally exhilarating to just know that that's going on. So you get caught in this kind of uh, you get caught in this kind of. It's almost like the op. It's like the opposite of colonialism or something, where right. you get caught in this thing of wine to be like, oh, these precious, cute people. If I could just keep them like how I like them, <laughs> where they stir my imagination. Yeah. yeah. You know, I just want them to stay like how they are because that's how I like them. Like when I come down to visit, I like to know that they're all doing the shit that's interesting to me, but in no way are they perceiving their experience in that way. But you go down and see like in in the handful of years, as much as they've changed all the time, right? In the handful of years to see that just like practices are different, dress is different, clothing very different so you're just seeing it happen you're seeing in real time it happened in a fast way now you might come up and be like oh i was in the u.s in the pre-internet days and i came to the u.s in the post-internet days and um and man is that place different but you're watching it like wherever you live you're also seeing that happen too so you're living that transition but to go to there and then come back five years later uh, and see things different, it really, um, yeah, man, it, it, it fucking, like, as much as I hate to admit it and as wrong as it is, but just to be, like, absolutely upfront. front, it, like, it kind of bummed me out. So when you talk about, when you talk about from a hunting perspective, because I tend to view the world through a hunting and fishing perspective, but when you talk about bringing bows down, right. my first thought is, oh, that's no fun. <laughs> they shouldn't do that, because I like watching them
0: hunt with the homemade bows. Right. No, it's it's totally rational, and it completely makes sense. Yeah, it's just... A, it, it's a thing. longing for nostalgia, and then you find it. You, you find it as it's changing. You know, as much as you know about the American West, and as much as you told me uh, about the, the history of the American West and the Native Americans, to see these people that are essentially like, in some ways, like the Native Americans before the colonial people arrived. Yeah. Or,
1: like, uh, I guess the, it would be... This is a bold statement. If there's an anthropologist or a historian listening, they're gonna pull their hair out. But it would maybe would be like I'm so hesitant to even throw this out. Just it's extremely approximate and full of holes and full of contradictions. But some kind of post contact scenario and I don't know, like let's say it was the 1890s or something right here. Mm. The firearm was very much a part of stuff. You know? But yeah, yeah. so it's like um, but you know it's it's makes it's complicated in the internet age. But at that time, you definitely we had definitely established a form of tourism in the American West, right? They're, yeah. By the you know I mean well before the Francis Parkman. Um, so Francis Parkman was this figure. He wrote the definitive history of the French and Indian War. But in 1842, he was a historian. He had health problems. In 1842, he did a tourism trip out on to the Great Plains. He met some fur trappers, some mountain men. He traveled with the Oglala Sioux. Uh, Crazy Horse, who probably wasn't Crazy Horse yet. He, he, was, he was named Curly as a kid. Crazy Horse. He was in Crazy Horse. like
0: the Three Stooges?
1: Yeah, I think that, I think that was like a name. For him. I don't even know it and have no idea what it meant. Huh. Before he adopted the name Crazy Horse. Um, he would have been 13 years old. And Francis Parkman traveled with them as a tourist, and they went into the Black Hills of South Dakota. They went in there to get lodge poles because it was the time you year when they would go and fit out their lodge poles for their teepees to re- replace broken lodge poles. They went up into the Black Hills, killed some bighorn sheep by throwing rocks down on them off a cliff, went and shot a bunch of buffalo. And he was out there like as a tourist. Okay. <sighs> so, tourism in the American West. Now, you got to remember the last. The last free roaming, the last like non confined plains Indians didn't get rounded up till, depending on your definition, 1876, 1877. So he was out there way before that. There were still like what they described at the time as hostile wild Indians were running around and he was traveling with them as a tourist. So I I just bring that up to bring this idea that. Here's this group of people who are very much engaged in tourism. Like, I was down there. I was down there because I wanted to go on a river trip. I wa- and, and it's something I've done a handful of times. I wanted to go on a river trip and 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 participate in their hunting and fishing and food gathering activities as they engage in them, if I, the same way they might engage in it if I wasn't there. That's why we weren't fishing. Yeah. That's why we weren't catching aeropimers and letting them go. So there's that in the internet era, but it's like there's that thing I always return to. It's like you're still you're still hunting and fishing all your own food or growing it in your yard.
0: Now when you guys went down there, did you participate in the hunting and fishing or did you just observe? No, participate in it. You participated yeah. with their traditional tackle or did you you use your own stuff?
1: I've done both. I've hunted fish with my own bow and I've hunted fish with their bow. And in the end I wound up the first time I went down, I hunted fish The second time, too, I I hunted four fish, so bow-fished with um, their gear. But then it always felt, like, somehow funny, too. Because, like, there's a thing that happens when you're watching, like, goofy, uh, you know, you watch, like, goofy survival shows and shit. There's always the part where the host, you know, grapples with how difficult it is to master ancient technologies you're trying to just pick it up and do it from scratch okay Brovin has been shooting that bow at fish for he's 32 years old he's been shooting that bow at fish for let's say 27 years it is not an unusual thing to him all right so when you go pick it up and you're like man you got to give props to these guys for being able to kill fish with this bow it's like well Kind of and kind of not, because if you spent 27 years doing something, you're damn sure going to be good at it. The same way is if you took someone, like one of these first contact peoples from between Peru and Brazil and handed them my laptop and said, hey, pull up my Gmail contacts from scratch. He might be like, man, I got to give props to you guys. (laughs) I had no idea. Right. It's just like absurd. Yeah. So I was having this conversation with someone the other day where, you know, the first time Daniel Boone in 1760, Daniel Boone went through the Cumberland Gap for the first time and dropped down into what's now Tennessee and Kentucky. And he stayed there hunting hides. He was a hide hunter. Stayed there hunting hides for two years. Ran out of gunpowder, made his own gunpowder. And made it out of uh, bat guano, your own piss, potash, right? You can cook this shit up, right, and make your own gunpowder. Wow. And I always look at that as being the epitome of woodsmanship. And the (laughs) fact that he could do it makes him seem
0: otherworldly. How do they, what kind of formula do they have for how much piss, how much bat guano? It's just something they knew. Do you know that bat guano used to be something that was so cherished people would go to war for it? Yeah, for explosive. fucking incredible. Not just for explosive, but also for fertilizer. Oh, no. Yeah, that's the, the term bat shit crazy. Like the people would, bat shit. Yeah, people would fight for bat shit. Yeah, they would go nuts. Like it was so
1: valuable. That's where all the buffalo bones went after the near extermination of the buffalo. Really? Yeah. But the really good shit was bone china, china tableware, and everything else is fertilizer. Wow. Yeah, but you you could make the same some of the same characters that were involved in the slaughter were involved in picking up the bones. They're called bone pickers. Picked up for fertilizer. But no, I didn't know that about bat guano. I had
0: no idea that bone china. Yeah. There's still bone China no kidding yeah I thought China was always like some sort of
1: ceramic. There's a place in Detroit on the on the Rogue River in Detroit that uh, the Rouge River Rogue River depending on what dude in Michigan you're talking to um, there's a place there called the Detroit Carbon Works that used to so you know you, when you're watching movies including the Revenue, you know that giant pyramid pile of buffalo skulls that yeah. turns up in everywhere every sure. book every movie that photo was taken at the Detroit Carbon Works and what they were producing was bone fertilizer
0: wow is there more than one of those photos whoa that, Jesus, i mean it's that's just the a, it's everywhere wow you can't is, escape that picture that's an incredible picture
1: that's that's taken in Detroit Michigan where i'll point out was one of a handful God. of states that, that never had buffalo in the history in, in the his, history there's no buffalo in Michigan.
0: So they were not extirpated out of nope. Michigan? They just Those were, were picked never
1: there? up. Those bones were picked up in the American West, shipped by rail to Minneapolis, Chicago, Detroit, turned into bone fertilizer, and then shipped back out for people tilling up the Great Plains.
0: That pho- Go back to that photo again. That photo is so disturbing. Dude, like, it's wild. How, how many skulls is that?
1: In my book about buffalo, I'm describing that picture, Gosh. and I say that the man standing on top, is like an exclamation point at the end of a long sentence about death and destruction. (laughs) Because I look at him. It's like he somehow realizes the weirdness of what he's involved in, but that was
0: post-extermination. There's a crazy um, podcast from Dan Carlin on uh, the Wrath of the Khans, Mm -hmm. on uh, Genghis Khan, and they describe how the Charisman Shah sends a a group to uh, check out Jin China, and they got there like about a year after uh, Genghis Khan had killed everyone in the entire city, over a million people, and they thought what what they saw in the distance they thought was a uh, snow capped mountain. As they got closer, they realized it was a pile of human bones. Really?
1: Yeah. Man, those guys were hardcore
0: Ooh, back then. Whoo-hoo-hoo. Shit. as <laughs> it gets. Yeah. Jonestown wouldn't even have been a blip. <laughs> it been nothing. It'd be like oh, a minor. It's like it'd be like a car crash. He changed the carbon footprint of the human race him during his time. They don't know how many people they have to through rough, depopulation, through depopulation, cooking fires. They they believe they killed more than 10% of the population. Like Genghis Khan and his people through his orders killed more than 10% of the population of the world. And wasn't he the number one land
1: conqueror? but just never held on to anything. Well, they conquered more, than like,
0: yeah. the, conquered more than Napoleon, conquered more than Hitler, but just didn't hold it. I'm not sure about that. I don't know about that, but I know that they always lived in tents, and they despised people that lived in homes. They thought they were pussies. They probably thought that after their life, they probably thought they were vulnerable too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably, right? Yeah, I mean, just anybody listening, uh, Wrath of the Cons, it's a five-part series. And I think Dan Carlin... He charges for them. You can buy it on iTunes, but I think it's only a dollar per, and it is the best dollar you ever spend And he's in your done life. World War
1: I. Yes.
0: Yeah. And I'm not sure what else he's done. He's done a lot of I mean, his podcast is just absolutely amazing. He's a, an incredible and a super humble guy. Won't call himself an historian, but meanwhile, has the best history educational series you can get. Yeah. It's a buck, a buck a, a piece, and they're like an hour and a half long, and they're fucking incredible. Yeah. He's uh, he's a real treasure, that guy.
1: Doesn't call himself in his story because he doesn't use, like, primary source material or something? Just reads popular works?
0: I don't know why. I mean, I know he— Because who who owns the name? Yeah. Who owns the definition? Uh, He's just really humble. Yeah, I got it. You know I mean? But his main focus of study, his entire life has been history. You know, and when he does these things, well, it's like, if he calls what he does a podcast, I need to change what I do. Because yeah. I, what I call a podcast is just so – it pales in comparison because we're just sitting here talking, right? Yeah. What he does is he prepares for these things for months and cites different sources and, and references and then essentially does an educational entertainment piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's why he doesn't like the term historian is because he's not um, – he's not contributing – He's not contributing to the body of knowledge. He's interpreting the body of knowledge.
0: Right. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe. I think he's just super humble, too. He just wouldn't wouldn't say that no matter what. But I, somehow it's, I don't know why, more disturbing to see a pile of human bodies than it is to see a pile of the buffalo bones. Yeah, I think I told you, um, and I talked about this a thousand times, what
1: after the Custer massacre, the guys that that were following the, the other soldiers who were coming in after the Custer massacre. And they didn't know what had happened. You know, they hadn't got word yet that Custer and his entire command had been wiped out by the Sioux and Northern Cheyenne. And they're riding up the Valley and they're looking off in the distance and they're, and they see all these sort of white bloodyish things and all these dark brown things. And one of the guys wrote that their initial impression looking at it was that Custer must have caught the Indians in the middle of a buffalo hunt and what they were seeing was it was summertime and they were seeing fatty buffalo carcasses that had been skinned and that the brown things were the buffalo hides laid out next to the carcass but when on closer inspection it was the brown things were horses, cavalry horses and the white things were stripped and mutilated soldiers. (sighs)
0: It's a good image. Wasn't one of the guys, one of the Native Americans that was in the Little Bighorn, you know, whatever event? Wasn't he one of the guys who toured with Wild Bill? Many of them. So they were. They had killed American soldiers, and then they went on this entertainment tour.
1: Yeah, it would be as though, it would be like. This is a fucking risky comparison. No, I'm not even gonna do it. You gonna say Nazi? No, 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 I definitely wasn't going to say that cuz it's way different. It would be like uh I'm not going to say it. I don't want to make the comparison. It'll come back to haunt me. Um, I'm trying to think of something that would work. It would be like a, a a people that we now fought against later became a media celebrity. Yeah. Oh, I guess they're kind of dealing with it right now in Colombia where the FARC, right? Now that Colombia has struck a peace accord with the FARC, and the FARC are entering into politics, entering into media, FARC commanders who spent their entire life fighting against the Columbia government. Many atrocities were traded back and forth. They now come on the, the Columbia uh, equivalent of 60 Minutes to do interviews. Wow. Okay. So it's like where you have an adversary that, that hostilities end and the reconciliation is so... Complete and so quick that you can come, you can become a media personality.
0: And this guy was a touring media personality. So right? Gall, uh, quite a number giant of them. a guy,
1: right? Yeah, Gall, who um, the, uh, name? the the historian Evan S. Connell. Jesus, G A L L.
0: And there's some photos of this guy, right?
1: Yeah, there are photos
0: of him. See if you can find that.
1: Evan S Connell he was he was huge. and, yeah. and um, the the novelist who wrote sort of my favorite Custer history, uh, he, he says that uh, Gaul went through Custer's men like a wolf through sheep. and um, yeah. so that's a
0: hard looking man. He someone Look asked him face. how
1: long it took, how long that fight lasted. He said it lasted about as long as it takes a hungry man to eat his dinner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. That is a hard-looking gentleman right there. Yeah. That face, man.
1: So he toured all over the country, people would pay to
0: see him, pay to get their photos taken with him. Wow. He did selfies? <laughs> 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 selfies with people? Wow, what a crazy thing that must have been. Isn't it so wild? they had some mock war that they would do?
1: Yeah, they would come out and reenact the battle.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, so you could go down and this would have been in your own lifetime. The, the, the people who, the families of the men killed at the battle of Little Bighorn could have gone down and got their photo taken with and, and paid to watch and interacted with the gentleman who likely cloved their father's head in with a tomahawk. Jesus Christ. We're not as, like, we always want to think about how much worse we
0: are now, right? Is that Buffalo Bill up there? I don't it's know if his, that's Hickok. Yeah, show. yeah, I don't think
1: that's him, but that's from his show. Wow.
0: I'm sorry, what Bill. were you going to say? We're not that far removed. <laughs> oh
1: no, I was just saying Like we now think we've gotten to such a weird spot, but yeah, you want to point out that see, people must have been a, a tad
0: more forgiving at the time. Well, there must have been much more used to death and murder. Yeah, because it was so common, and it's just it was so personal, because you know you're doing it with hatchets and axes and. Guns that don't fire very well. So you're doing yeah. it at close range. You're shooting people with muskets from. And there was so much more violence then.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so much more death. Yeah. The fact that you can grow up and be so old now and never see a dead person <laughs> is like just a new idea. It is pretty crazy. You know? I got people
0: my age that never seen a dead guy. Yeah. Well, it's a real eye opener when you see one. There's a lot of people that haven't even seen a dead animal. Dude, I could sit
1: and rattle off the dead people I've seen. It's How many burned in my mind how many
0: dead people have i seen yeah not 10 what have you seen dead people from i saw two people
1: that were not just dead but in bits after a plane crash i saw oh
0: where was that fucking not even a mile from my house holy I was a little shit kid. yeah and then um and then uh Commercial plane or like one of those little private. a
1: fifty-seven-year-old man and a thirteen-year-old kid. I, I try. I tried recently, briefly, to find to, to go back and find the article. But the way I here's how the story went down is uh the way I remember it. A detail that I remember very clearly is that this guy it was his neighbor kid, and they, he had told this kid's parents they were going down to wash the airplane and look at the airplane. And he decided to take the kid up for a flight. I don't know if that's true or not. I was trying to find that article to confirm that aspect of it. But I lived on a lake called Middle Lake. And, and we, everybody remembers this. For whatever reason, this guy buzzed our lake a couple of times really low. There was a guy down on the east end of the lake named Mr. Rupert. And I remember what was unusual about Mr. Rupert was he would eat freshwater clams, which we were forbidden from doing by our dad. But Why, um, why is that? You know, it's just not. It's, people don't regard it as a good practice at all to eat freshwater clams because of toxins. I don't. You know, it's, uh, that's another thing I haven't really looked into why that doesn't happen. But people just generally don't eat freshwater clams. Hmm. But we would go get them and clean them. And I remember we cleaned a whole shitload once. My dad's like, no. But Mr. Rupert would eat these freshwater clams. And um,
0: would he go raw or would he cook them?
1: I'm sure he would cook them. He said, man, I saw that plane. When it dove down over the lake, it went up, but then dove down again and never came back up. Uh, And he even told some neighbors this. The next day when we wake up, uh, the sheriff's posse, the mounted, like our area had a mounted, like a bunch of volunteers who had horses. And they were like the mounted sheriff's posse, right? Like deputized individuals during emergencies such as this. They were all loading up their horses, to head out into the woods to look for some plane. And another detail that was told to me that I wanted to verify, that would lo- I, need to, I just need to go back and, and go through the microfiche where I grew up and find the article because it was something like it had a signal on it and the signal was picked up by some other country even. But they knew that a plane had gone down. And that was a matter of fact. Everyone at this point knew that this plane had gone down. Um, and we were riding around on our bikes out in the woods, Just kind of following these sheriff's posse guys as they were sort of combing through the woods, and eventually a news helicopter was hovering over a spot like right at where, uh, right where the end of White Lake Drive. Um, And there was a news helicopter hovering over there. My my two brothers went directly there on their bikes, and I was younger. And for some reason, I went and got my mom, and then we drove over and we got to the end of White Lake Road where we had to walk into the woods. And there was a guy there that tried to block my mom and me from going in there. And I always remember he said, um, uh, if you're going to go in there, you better have a strong stomach. And she's like, well, my kids are in there. And so we go in there and Matt and Danny are just standing at the edge of the hole there. And they're trying to sort out. They're trying to sort out who was who inside this plane Wow. into bags. I'm not shitting you, man. Like and and yeah, I, I have like some visual details I remember from that. Or just like uh, yeah, and then it's kind of macabre, but yeah, I, I like like and then that was you know that, and then I remember we were at a, our neighbor Mrs. Musselman. Um, I remember we were at her birthday party in the cater just fell over dead in front of
0: everybody um, <laughs> so like stuff Those like are that very <laughs> non-war related things right that's no. what's what's interesting is most well, yeah, I'm people just saying
1: like but you can you can see that either these are just like happen chance things but right. yeah you can go through life we just have it sort of set up now or you can be hidden from it but then you talk to previous generations just a like just it was just a part of stuff yeah, yeah. you know my old man talked about walking. He grew up in Chicago. He talked about walking out of a party one time. There's a dead guy at the bottom of the stairs <sighs> that had been beaten to death. Just like day, just like then went off to World War II and saw who knows what. So, yeah, I, I, when people talk about how now we're so violent and shit, there's nothing to
0: the support joke. that. Nothing. No, it's the safe time, safest time to live ever. You used to be able to hang people from trees and not get in trouble for it if they were the right color. Yeah. Not that long ago. No. That's what's crazy about this Wild Bill Hickok shit. We're talking about what, 1870, 1880? When was it?
1: And what's funny is he was one of the combatants. So some of those guys, like Wild Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok, Hickok actually had like a dispute over who got to have the name, you know, Bill, Buffalo Bill Cody, Wild Bill Hickok. There's some other Wild Bills, I guess, and it was, like, it was like a popular name, right? But they were combatants too. So they engaged in these wars. And the fact that you would later get both sides of the war, it'd be like if you went and got a bunch of Germans who were defending the Normandy Beach, Omaha Beach, and you got a bunch of the um, Americans who were storming Omaha Beach, and you had a traveling road show in which they would pretend to inflict mass casualties on one another for Paying, adoring crowds. How bizarre. Who came up with the idea for that? <laughs> I don't know, Could man. Had that have been
0: done ever in history before?
1: <laughs> I don't know. My guess would be, you know, there's a guy, there's a thing that I've told people a bunch of times, no one ever believes me that it's true, but it's fucking true. It's true. There was a guy one time, you know Niagara Falls, right? You've been to mm-hmm. Niagara Falls? No. Big damn waterfall. Uh, you know, the St. Lawrence, right? St. Lawrence drains the Great Lakes and on its way out to the... Atlanta. It was a big-ass waterfall Niagara Falls. Um, a guy one time bought, uh, there was like a zoo was liquidating its holdings, and a man bought the zoo and bought a barge and put all of the zoo animals on the barge and charged a dollar to watch him send his barge full of animals over the falls. <laughs> So, right? Yeah, not that long ago. Now, what happens if you? It, yeah, now, you, you nowadays, Jay's. <laughs> nowadays,
0: <laughs> nowadays, the they'll put you in a cage. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, we've traveled. What is this, Jamie? Uh, this is uh, like from when the <clears throat> when the show started in the World's Fair.
2: He got denied from uh, doing the the show outside of the World's Fair Who's like he? 1893. Wild Bill Hickok. Yeah. You're not talking oh, about okay.
0: Sorry, F. Cody. So I don't know which one is okay. which. But uh, he found a 14 acre swath of land where he set up stands for 18,000 people to watch each show, and over two million people saw it during
2: like that whatever during the World's Fair that year. God, that's how. Which, I don't which know is if like, he was the first one. But.
1: And there weren't even uh, there were, there were two million saw it, but there were less, well under probably way less than 75 million people in the country. Wow.
0: On what year was it? In World War II, there were 150 million. That's incredible. 18,000 spectators, 74 Indians from the Pine Ridge Reservation of South Dakota. Wow, 18,000 spectators must have been amazing That's back crazy. then.
1: Yeah, now but here but think about the numbers uh, at that battle that they historians feel that at that battle that was the largest gathering of Plains Indians to have ever occurred. An encampment of maybe 10,000 individuals.
0: And how many people were there from What's his face? Custer. Custer.
1: He rode into one end of the camp. That's why it's not well understood. Like there were other engagements going on at the same time. When when you say like Custer, his command was annihilated. There were other prongs to the attack that that were repelled and beaten, but it was only like one prong of the attack
0: that had Custer in it
1: that was annihilated.
0: And how many people did Custer have? He
1: rode in with about 200 people
0: and ran into
1: A, an encampment of 10,000 individuals. <laughs> and later some of these individuals like Gall and others in interviews said that even at the time, our understanding is that these people were all hopelessly drunk. Oh my God. Because it did not make sense what they were doing. Wow. They just didn't know. It's no one understood. That's, that's why Custer, that's why there's still all these Custer people who just debate and argue and is like, uh, uh some of his Crow scouts, okay, he had some Cree or Ree scouts and Crow scouts who came and told him, "Do not, you cannot go down there in the morning." They were planning on to attack at daybreak, and they said, "You cannot do that. That makes no sense." He said, "We're going." Um, they did their death songs. Some of the some of his scouts sang their death songs because they knew that they would be dying in the morning, and um, it's debated still today. To what extent did he, like, did he believe what his scouts were telling him? Okay, So was it suicidal or was it hubris? No one thinks it was suicidal. It was either that he just didn't really comprehend what they were telling him or he was so, you know, he was a decorated Civil War figure and probably was a very ardent believer in the superiority of like of his army and they were trained soldiers with discipline that there was just one prong of a three or, you know, three prong attack or two prong attack. He was riding into one end of the village, but he just rode into the village and they were just killed. Right. And in and depi- in popular depictions, they always show Custer like his, the last guy standing, like there's a mountain of his dead guys around him, you know, and he's still firing his revolver uh, with long hair. When in fact he had short hair at the time, but uh, some people think that when in, in looking at it, he probably, yeah. The great one is Here Fell Custer.
0: The um, great image? Yeah. Like Jamie the, just pulled up a, a crazy picture. So Here Fell Custer. Is that a contemporary picture? Did it say what? No, no, that's the old
1: classic. There's one that was on the anheuser I meant contemporary Bush. to the time. Yeah, Here Fell Custer is a little bit later. But then um the one that was the Anheuser Busch one was by a German guy. I think that was the one you had pulled up. That was Anheuser like Anheuser Busch had a it custer. Was, photo? It was like their poster. Oh my god. That's Herefell Custer. Wow. Which is, is considered to be a very accurate which is considered to be a pretty accurate depiction of what was going on. Now the Native American died, version Custer of it. Died, Custer died early. I think he died earlier in the skirmish. He wasn't like the, in movies, he's got the flowing right. blonde hair, everyone's dead, and he's still firing away. Of course. He, he, was, he was probably killed earlier rather than later in the skirmish. It's so funny because. See right there, like he's like, you know, in yeah. a different position. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so funny that, that we've done that you know, that people have taken what they know most likely were historically inaccurate accounts and they pass them down generation to generation. And it makes you wonder, like, this is what we know now because this is only a hundred and so years ago. Yeah. Like, what, you know, what are we getting when we're getting some version of something that happened a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, you know? Yeah. How distorted. Insanely.
1: Yeah. But the problem we have as a culture, I think, is when someone goes to fix when someone goes to challenge our popular perceptions, um, it's it's branded as revisionist, and somehow like loses. Right, it becomes almost like uh, its credentials are tarnished. Mm. Do you remember the guy? I can't remember what politician. Jamie pull pulled up. There was a politician who said, um, he famously said, you know, after we realized that Paul Revere the 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 ride of Paul Revere was... Didn't really happen. Yeah, like fabricated from whole cloth, right? Right. There was a politician that said, I
0: love Paul Revere whether he rode or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when we were kids, we were taught Columbus discovered the United States. Yeah, I mean, we didn't figure that out until... It's it's still amazing. That it wasn't
1: what, like the West Indies. Yeah. and Yeah.
0: And to this day, it's still amazing that they celebrate that guy when you find out that he was a fucking monster. Yeah. I mean, the... What was it a... I believe it was a... Um, A minister or someone who some religious person who came with them at the time uh, left a journal about the atrocities committed directly by Columbus and his men uh, when they, you know, hacked off arms for people couldn't bring them back gold. And I mean, just horrific shit, smashed babies on rocks, did it right in front of them. And this guy was a firsthand account of what And we're supposed to believe. I mean, who knows how much of what he's saying is accurate, but if any of it is accurate. Columbus was a fucking monster.
1: Yeah, I think that what it stems from is that, from the perspective in Europe at the time, he had he had solidified and put some shit together that people had been kind of pecking around the edges of.
0: Right. Whether well, this continent existed.
1: Yeah, and and and, and yeah, and just had it was like a leap forward at the time.
0: Yeah. How crazy is that?
1: But, but the fact that it becomes that. Right? That he, like, you know, that in some people's minds, like, he, like, somehow established America. You
0: know? Yeah. And that we take a day off of school because of it. That's it, really crazy. It's bizarre. Columbus Day. I mean, we still, to this day, it's 2017, kids get Columbus Day off, don't they? But now it's like, here's the thing.
1: Now that no one, now that, now that sort of the consensus, right? The popular consensus is that, um, he was a one of many players involved in sort of putting together what was here and sort of outlining where it was and how to get here. Um, He was one of a bunch of players, you know, almost certainly not the first. Uh, No one cares about that meaning. What they mean is you're like saying like, I uphold the idea of Western civilizations, annexation of the new world as being a good thing, hmm. so when someone says like when someone gets pissed at the revisionists for questioning the legitimacy of Columbus, they're not actually talking about what he specifically did it's become It's become a proxy for the cultural annexation of the new world, and to say, "Oh, I hate Columbus, he's an asshole." They take it to mean you're saying that um, that uh, you're questioning our claim on the Western Hemisphere, and that
0: it was a bad thing. I think that's why people are annoyed by it. I don't think people are too much annoyed by it anymore because I think it's pretty much been established that Columbus is a really bad guy. But no one's
1: gone in and undid it I don't the day. Think they
0: have it. have they? Is there any? Is no, there any they kind of
1: change them around, don't yeah. they?
0: Well, they should probably come up with another name for it. You know. Uh happy uh No, th- th- it's Indian sure shit. it's still a day, right? <laughs> I think so, pretty sure. Yeah. It is kind of crazy though. I'm not I'm not like here to defend the day, but I I do understand like kind of how that shit came to be. Yeah, know? I understand it. It just seems pretty incredible that just 500 years ago, here it goes the war against Columbus Day in the Washington Post.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, waged by the same people who are waging the war against Christmas. Uh, is it really <laughs> Honestly,
0: That's <laughs> That's crazy. Indigenous Peoples Day in favor of Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, makes sense. Yeah, just give us a day off. We'll, we'll take it. I'm generally like like little <laughs> movements, like little m- cultural movements
1: like that. I'm generally not uh, receptive. I don't to? try. No, I don't try to read too much into them. Mm. If I woke up tomorrow and told me that we had decided, you know, that uh, <laughs> people got together.
0: And decided against Columbus Day. I wouldn't like do a lot of soul searching on right. that day. You know? No, no, <laughs> I wouldn't either. Well, you know, you don't work a traditional job anyway, or go to school where you take that day off. Oh yeah,
1: I think people that lost the day, yeah. they're
0: like, "Dude, that's my day, man." Yeah, it's just hard to imagine. <laughs> I thought I hit walleyes with my buddy Doug every year. <laughs> yeah, you'd be bummed. It's just hard to imagine that you know, 500 plus years ago, they really didn't know in Europe about the continental United States. Like that's that's amazing.
1: Yeah, that's another. We're talking about you know earlier we're talking about violence, right? Violent, more violent. Then I think that we're so tripped up by the upheaval caused by the digital age, right? And everything like you know just changed our sleep practices and just everything. You know, it's a major upheaval. Yeah, but picture that. (laughs) Picture that in your lifetime, they all like. You become aware that the the, the earth, that, that there are, you know, three times as many or whatever, as many civilizations on earth as it you thought there were. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing to grapple with. A huge thing to grapple with. People that had history, people that had boats, they were seafaring. Had more history than you. Yeah, they crazy or to think that one day and this is
1: not too long ago you know some of our grandparents remember this to think that one day we had devised a contraption that was capable of ending life on earth and that these contraptions could be initiated by the distant actions of a handful of people that that's a
0: change (laughs) right yeah yeah the Here, nuclear era. Here's the craziest change in the nuclear era: from the invention of an airplane to someone dropping a nuclear bomb from an airplane is less than fifty years. Yeah, I
1: think Wright brothers, 1903, right? 1906, 1903,
0: Some Obama, early 1900s. First
1: sustained uh, flight with a heavier-than-air yeah. vehicle, yeah. and then in 1945 they dropped
0: an atomic bomb. That's crazy. That's inside my life. Someone's like, I knew this airplane shit was going to take <laughs> off. <laughs> But that is probably one of the biggest changes ever in terms of like the amount of, in, in 50 years in the world, to go from no air travel at all to dropping a nuclear bomb out of an airplane in less than 50 years.
1: Yeah, and to then have it be that it's a staple of uh, of, of, of American life. That you, that not just where other people, like space travel, you're like, okay, it's this flood of information, but it's not affecting me. but. With that's like, that's now how you get around. Yeah. You know, that you, like at a time when you wanted to cross the country, you would lose a large percentage of your party to death, right? You had to plan ahead. It would take many, many months to being just a thing you just do on a whim. Now, I do believe, like I accept that we are in a state of upheaval right now. And I think that we're probably impacting ourselves in ways we don't fully understand. How so? Digital devices. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Just how you run your day.
0: Yeah, no doubt. How
1: you spend your time, how you run your day.
0: Well, ever go to a restaurant and you see a whole group of people just staring at their phone?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we were laughing about this the other day. If you're staying at the baggage claim, not looking at your phone, people are going to think you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. My friend- you're just
0: looking around, yeah, trying to make conversation with people.
1: My friend Rourke was talking about a conversation his wife was having with someone where someone was in Starbucks drinking a coffee, just sitting there staring at the wall like a fucking lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're, you know, if you're you'd like, what's be wrong with that out? person? What was, What are they up to? Are they going to start killing people? They're not doing anything with their phone. Um, it, it's a big thing, but one of the helpful thing, I guess, one of the helpful, just to bring it full circle. One of the helpful things, um, you know, about traveling or about like just reading about history is you stop, you lose some of that sense of specialness about thinking that the life you're living in the moment you're living it is this great test of humanity or some like super peculiar thing going on. And he realize that people have always been involved with and struggle with cataclysmic upheaval, you know, and then to go and, then to, and to go witness some other people in some version of that transition um is pretty healthy, man. Maybe in the long term, like just traveling, going to see how other people do stuff. It's unsettling, but probably ultimately pretty good for you.
0: Yeah, I think it's very good for you. Just anything that enhances perspective, it gives you like another layer that you could uh, consider when you think about life on Earth. We're so used to our own environment, our own ways. It's like you were talking about talking to these people and asking them, like, why don't you eat monkeys? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we just don't eat monkeys. Have, has he ever been to a supermarket?
1: That's a good question. A couple of years ago, when I was mentioning that, uh, I'd mentioned to you that, that, uh, the, the, that a couple of American companies who have a, that have like some conservation spending they do, they were training some guys from Rewa Village. They were training some of them to uh, just how to interface with Westerners. And as part of that, he went up to he might have even gone up to the Bahamas to go for a couple of days to a fly fishing lodge. So, I'm get, so yeah, he flew on a commercial aircraft. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um,
0: just what we just but love he's to pecu- see. B-
1: but he's peculiar in that way. Now, I've brought up to him, I'm trying to talk him into coming up and going, I want to take him on an ice fishing trip. So,
0: <laughs> I, I, I want to take him out to
1: Alaska to fish through the ice. Because what I want him to understand is um, I'm so uncomfortable with him, physically uncomfortable With the heat, with everything biting me all the time, just everything. It's just extremely uncomfortable.
0: And to him, it's standard. Yeah, it's comfortable. But he's never,
1: like, if he hadn't done that trip or, you know, or just all of his siblings and most other people in those villages, they never experienced, you know, they never experienced 50 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: Now, what is it like to them when it comes to bugs? Do they have any sort of resistance to mosquitoes or anything along those lines? They don't care about it nearly as much as we care about it. Do they get the same amount of bites though? Do they get chewed up like we do? Yeah,
1: they complain about tick bites and stuff, but it doesn't mm. generally, it doesn't seem to bother them like we do because it's just a part of everyday life. Like you got to get used to, you know, in like, in like hanging out in Bolivia, you get bit by bees and wasps at about the same rate that you'd get Bit by mosquitoes if you were at like some 4th of July thing out at your uncle's pond, you know, shooting fireworks off at night on the edge of a cattail marsh. Really? It's like you're just getting bit. You just like wake up and you start getting bit by bees and wasps. So they just get just kind of used to it. And then you'd say, like, I remember when I got stung by a bullet ant asking, like, hey, how many times have you been stung by bullet ants? And a lot of them would be like, I couldn't even begin to guess how many times I've been stung by bullet ants. But it's like, but they just suffer different. So what I want to do is I want him to experience suffering. <laughs> While watching me not suffer, <laughs> so like I want him to look uh, at me with awe. <laughs> okay, and so to do this, I want him to come up and ice fish. I'm going to take him up, and I got a I got a friend who likes to go on. He likes to get on snow machines in February or March out of Fairbanks, and they go overnight camping on snow machines, fishing through the ice for burbot. So What's I'm a like burbot? Oh, fr- they call them lings or lawyers. You know why they call them lawyers is when you gut a burbot, his, uh, his heart's way back next to his asshole. <laughs> so they call them lawyers or vent, you know, fish have a, like a, like a cloaca. They have a uni hole, you mm-hmm. know, we have like, like a, like a bird. Yeah. We have a couple outlets and they have a single outlet for waste and sexual exchange, um, so, yeah, lawyer, burbot, freshwater ling, poor man's lobster is another word for it. It's a northern fish. Uh, looks like if you combined a snake and a bullfrog, kind of. Uh, yeah, I want to take him out to camp in a tent in 40 degree below weather. That's it right
0: there? Yeah. Wow, what a cool looking fish. Burbot.
1: Very wow. good to eat.
0: Yeah? Very good. Wow. Now, are they commonly caught through the ice or do people catch them on the street? That's a northern pike. That's a northy.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's kind of, a yeah, burbot or not. They're in the Great Lakes. They're they're all over there in Alaska. Yeah, there's bourbon everywhere.
0: So does it taste like lobster? Is that why um, they call it a poor man's lobster? No,
1: the reason they call it poor man's lobster doesn't really taste like lobster, but it's suitable for boiling it and dipping it in butter and cocktail sauce and eating. Really? Yeah, but you also make fish sandwiches with it. Huh. They even sell that shit commercially. Bourbon. Guys that have, like, guys that, like, uh, Native American, like, so... In the northern Great Lakes, you have Ojibwa. The Ojibwa Indians still carry on White Lake. They fish for Great Lakes whitefish. They trap net Great Lakes whitefish. They're able to sell uh, bycatch of burbot, and they have restaurants. In, like in the UP, I got some friends that do it, and, and they have restaurants in the UP that they sell their burbot into, and they make burbot sandwiches. Huh. Freshwater link. That's So I want to take him on an ice fishing trip. and um, But for him to leave... Like, he doesn't go into Georgetown, which is the capital of his country. He'd have to go into Georgetown and start, like, trying to figure out some kind of uh, visa situation and a passport.
0: Does he have a birth certificate?
1: I don't know what he has. I told him that I would try to help him with all that. But he said it's, like, a very daunting idea that you would, like, go and leave the country. Wow. Or that you'd go in and stay in Georgetown. But he has
0: been on a commercial flight.
1: He did that trip,
0: yeah. Yeah. So he has done it.
1: Yep, he has done it.
0: He but he said, he, so he
1: had to get a passport in order to do it. His passport didn't last long, and now he has no passport anymore is what he's telling me. When I was asking him about the feasibility of this.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And then, you don't need a visa for there, but he needed a visa to come here. Hmm. But I'm going to figure it out. I want to have him up so bad. Wow. Him and his brother, Dennis. One of the things that surprised, like, one of the things you get is, um, you know, you're from, what state were you born in? New Jersey. Yeah, see, it's like, you've been all over the place right yeah uh imagine that imagine that you hunted and fished and farmed that's all you did so you're always on the land yeah and you've done it all within a 25 mile a 20 mile radius of your home so you're outside hunting and fishing or farming or gathering in the jungle every day and you're in your 30s or 40s and you've done it in a radius of 20 miles
0: Wow.
1: How, to what level you understand your spot and without the distractions of the digital shit and without the, the distractions of an occupation.
0: Oh, he doesn't work at all.
1: Not. I mean, Just now he, he guides a little bit every year. For the fish. He guides a little bit, but typically not. Like most days, he's not engaged in that activity. So the spatial awareness is the thing that's most striking to me in In spending time with with these individuals is um everything I'm interested in what they notice and and uh what they never miss it It's like you realize that all of the bits of information that you're able to contain in your head that allow you to function and carry on right you're like. A comedian and you do shit with MMA and you have a very successful podcast and you have a family and you're digitally very astute and you have opinions about fucking coffee right all this shit you're widely read right that's like all you sort of fill up your brain with as much as it can hold but for them it's like it seems to be from my perspective it's like all of that breadth of knowledge but crammed into the natural world to where every plant Every tree, what are its uses? What are the other things? And it's like they know as much. Like they know as much as we know. But it's just focused in a way that our breadth of knowledge, which, which would probably be astounding to them if they realized all the shit we knew about. But they're, all, that, all those bits of information are just applied in a different way. Down to like a granular understanding of the jungle.
0: It would probably be very bizarre for them to see us like walk like out to this parking lot. these little patches of like plants. We don't have a fucking clue as to no. what they are. We pass through them like they, they, they're just peripheral. There they, is no like, oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Wow. No. They know everything. And there's toxicity. How many thousands and thousands <laughs> of different varieties but of listen, plants and there's, animals? You
1: know, at various times there's 1,500 species of birds. Listen, I like. There was never a moment when I heard a bird call. There was, uh, I never said, "Hey, what's that bird?" That everyone there didn't say what the bird was.
0: Huh.
1: Bird sounds, just wow. from sounds. That's a... It's like you can't like, and the shit that like, yeah, it, it's defi- it's almost just something you have to go see. Is um the ability to just like move through the jungle and notice everything.
0: Now, are they like the people in Bolivia where they're barefoot most of the time?
1: Yeah, but, you know, that's another bummer is getting more into shoes, man. (laughs) Uh, Roman still likes to take his shoes off when he goes into the jungle. Like We went into the jungle after some Curacao, and and he he pulled his shoes off to be extra quiet. But, yeah, so he'll now and then put flip-flops on now, and before there's no way.
0: Wow! Do they still have the weird <clears throat> feet that are all just calloused yeah. and toes are spread, splayed out? Yeah. yeah, it's very strange the way their feet look.
1: Real strange. I was, in, you know, in, the, in I was in the Philippines one time in the highlands where people are just hiking mountain trails, like in you know severe topography on rocky ground, and the feet there I, I've never seen anything like it. Barefoot, I, yeah, but this. just wow. a, it's almost unrecognizable as a human foot. Really, from your perspective of a human foot,
0: what does it look like?
1: Have uh, have have your your man here. <laughs> is there
0: photos of their feet?
1: Type on uh, Luzon Island, uh, Luzon Island Highlands, uh, Kalinga, K A L I N G
0: A feet. I don't know. Try that. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably some high resolution National Geographic. Oh, photographs you'll see some of cra- if, feet. If, if,
1: if this if he's any good at his job, you will be seeing some crazy feet <laughs> in a moment. You know, another thing I wanted to uh, share with you, I mentioned a, sort of a surreal image is, uh, you know, watching a woman in a DKNY shirt, like digging yeah. turtle eggs for food. Um, there, There's there's flowers, you know, everything's in bloom, right? Um, it was just the beginning of the rainy season, so there's some rain, like everything was in bloom. And these flowers, just all flowers of all variety hang out over the river. And sometimes you'll pass through and it just has this, like, warm, floral smell that just its astounding. Um, it reminds me of, you know, in, in the end of Apocalypse Now when Kurtz, when, when Captain Willard finally catches up with Kurtz. And Kurtz asks him where he's from. And he mentions Ohio. And Kurtz tells him about a river trip he took with his father. On the Ohio River when the gardenias were in bloom, you know, and he talks about the smell in the end of apocalypse. Now, but these flowers would the smell like that. But when the rain would come, what's going on? I can't even see what. I
0: got but you got some terrible.
1: feet. Oh, you'll find some feet, boy. Got yeah,
0: one. I was trying to find something better. Here's a.
1: Oh, um, it. so it would rain. It would knock the all the flowers into the river. Oh wow! And you know, like the way. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. So, Whoa. from grasping, wow, they're like almost like a gorilla's feet. Yeah, from gras like from wrapping your like wrapping your feet around things, rocks and stuff while you that climb. W-
0: that one in the middle's yeah, no, so no, I saw, I saw, I saw,
1: I saw like a number, like not yeah, quite a few people that had feet that resembled that from Graspings. just from 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 because like. You know, down in the Amazon and other areas, you're just walking on soft ground. You know, but imagine if you're just like walking on slippery rocks,
0: and you're using your feet in a way that's that's not even uncommon. So, what we're looking at for people that are just listening to this, it's like at the middle of their foot, especially that one foot in the middle to the right. It's like he's it's taking a turn, like a hard turn, like a 15 degree plus turn. Why do those seem like disembodied feet? Because it's just photographing the feet, I guess.
2: Real. Old, this is like a big article about some people from the Philippines. I think from the same area.
0: Oh, huh. Um, so what? We'll, but we'll, we'll go back to it for a second, Jamie. Because what we're seeing in this is um, this massive spacing between the big toe and then the first toe to the point where it it's looks like an like opposable. A it's an opposable toe. Yeah, it's crazy. Seems like almost like an opposable toe. Yeah, almost like a thumb. No, I'm sure what's at play ah, there that's too. It's really fucked. Like it makes you wonder. Like at one point in time, was it like that?
1: That that's the that's the thing is you wonder is and, and I don't know the answer to this, but my guess would be that over time, you know, that they're 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 not starting out with your foot. Like over time that that's just been something that's been selected for. Right in a population of people
0: like height or like you know Yeah some like just like whoa, selected for This have. guy's feet. Yeah. Holy Very common. Shit. Holy shit. We're wa- we're looking at what looks like frog but feet. But that's not even that's not even Praise? Asia. That's isn't that uh that's North says, America.
2: Yeah, it's an indigenous people feet, and then it's got
0: H u a o r a n i. How do you pronounce that? Harani. Harani. I'd have to check where that is. God, it's bizarre, but it really does show you from that, fucking
1: wearing shoes your whole yeah,
0: life. Yeah, and given the different environment like that, that's insane. Like what we're looking at here, li- they literally look like thumbs. Like they're sticking out of the side. But it's the same structure as a human foot, meaning that it's the same length of toes and, and just you see that from using it that way, they've just developed this incredible – you know what's really crazy? What is one of the hallmarks of civilization that shows like the really uh, t- poor choice in footwear when your feet go the other way? When they go in an ineffective direction, oh. they, they, get, they get that hammer toe and they climb yeah. over each other. This is, these people have functional feet. The point where you know they could probably hold something with their feet.
1: Yeah, when I look at uh, when I look at my wife's feet, I feel like it's like she's got a foot that
0: seems very much like shaped by a lifetime of office footwear. (laughs) Oh, it's awful, especially with women. They get that hammer toe, that bunion thing where their their toes are kind of crossed over to the side. I know that thing well. It's so weird. It's a weird choice that someone has decided that. Women should shove their toes into these pointy things. But, but, uh, just like with
1: that—that I saw the a, a group of individuals lock on to polarized sunglasses as being the shit. Um, I—if you went back in five years, I'm telling you, instead of everybody being, being barefoot, everybody's gonna be wearing shoes.
0: What if you got those women high heel shoes and said, "This is what all the women I think in that's America?" That's a stretch. Of course, I think it'd take a while. But you give, oh, that, that's disgusting! though. that's foot binding. Uh, it's just fucked up, right there. That's just insane. I can't
1: tell what I'm looking at.
0: Yeah, well, it's oh. her toes curled oh, under. It's from binding your yeah, feet. That's foot binding in China. Yeah, it's well, you know, soft tissue. It's very flexible. Oh man, go uh, go to Cirque du Soleil. Look what those people could do to their bodies. The human body is pretty bizarre in its ability to adapt. But it, yeah, you know those groups that used to bind their children's head to that backboard oh, yeah, to flatten yeah. their head out. Well, how about those people in, um, what part of the world was it uh, where they have that, Incas, where they have those uh, lines, the Nazca lines, you know, and they found all these skulls from people back then where they had stretched their heads out and almost made their heads look like aliens. Yeah. There you go. But uh, see if you find the Inca uh inca skulls it's so much so that a lot of the really loony people said look they're, they're trying to be like the aliens that have come down and given them knowledge and
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. have you ever been down to um do you remember those it, they're 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 held in salta argentina i went to see him one time but those children that they found they were entombed at the top of a mountain and they were basically freeze-dried no it's perfectly preserved children what, what happened to them? Well, they were taken up and given as an offering. So first, it seems, based on the um, stuff they had with them, that they were paraded through the Incan Empire, and people lavished them with gifts. And when they look at the isotopes in their bodies, it's like their diet, their whole lives, they had just had potatoes. But then you can see that toward the end of their lives, they were very well fed with meat and fish and all kinds of stuff. And they had just innumerable treasures uh gold pieces carved pieces so they were taken it seems as though they were taken throughout the empire and what, what's really funny about this speaking of columbus earlier is it was like yeah so wow it's like as best they, they haven't dated it exactly but it seems like i mean it seems like we're talking about you know columbus 1492 it's like we're talking about 1491 wow so the the height of this empire at at the, the the height of the empire, butting up up against its dramatic and sudden collapse with European contact, but they took, yeah I went to see and um she was not on, the only they made a deal with the indigenous people where they only put one on display at a time, but she was on display when I was there.
0: And what do they have their, How do they so, have her en- encapsulated?
1: So they took them. Well, I'll tell you how they came to be first. So. They were finely dressed, had a lot of ornaments and things with them, had been very well fed, and the the older gir- and they took them up to the, a high peak. I can't remember how high they might have been fourteen or fifteen thousand feet above sea level. And they built a little tomb for them and sat them in the tomb. They were drunk. They, they had a lot of rice wine in their bodies when they died. Uh, the oldest one must have put up some kind of struggle because she was hit in the head with a hammer or an axe. And they were just laid out sitting in this thing and then capped over with rocks. And it's a very stable environment. So they froze. And then, you know, we use now like backpacking food as freeze-dried food. Yeah. They used to, have, they used to do a very similar thing with, by just taking potatoes and storing them at high elevations. Where what freeze-drying is is your liquid. It's like you freeze something. And then expel the liquid where the liquid goes from a gaseous or it goes from a solid to a gas without passing through its liquid state. So when you freeze dry food, you like freeze dry you put it in the freezer and get it super cold. And then you start then you start putting it under a vacuum to a point where all the water goes immediately to a gaseous state. It doesn't pass through a liquid state. So it holds its form, but all the water's gone. If it goes to a liquid state, then it collapses, but it just holds its form, and the non-water parts of the cells just stay bound in their natural shape. So they were in this position and eventually just like expelled tons of water without ever thawing out, and when they found them, you can even see that the, they had been chewing coca leaves because of the high elevation. The kids still have dried coca leaves on their lips. Dude, it's wild. Wow. Yeah, me and my wife went there to look at them. Where is it now? It's in Salta, Argentina near the border, very near the border
0: with Bolivia. I wanted to ask you something totally unrelated, but it it came up because you talked about freeze-dried foods. I know you cook a lot, but have you ever, I know now you eat those mountain house things, but have you ever tried to make your own? Have you ever tried to dehydrate some of your wild game? Oh, yeah, I've dehydrated. I mean, anytime you make jerky, you're dehydrating stuff. Right, but have you ever made, like, chili and things like that where you could rehydrate it in the field? I don't think I've ever made dehydrated.
1: No, I've assembled a lot of... Dehydrated things, but I've never de like. At what point? How many ingredients need to be in something before it becomes like a recipe?
0: Mm, just two? a couple. Yeah,
1: pemmican—that's a recipe. It's what is it? Pemmican—that's got two things What's in it. What's pemmican? Pulverized meat uh with liquid fat poured over the top of it. Did you know what that is? No. People fuck that up all the time. What pemmican is? I've never heard of it before.
0: I don't think. Yeah, so I, did, be, I Forgot it.
1: It's like the original road food. You dry meat. Into jerky, air-dry meat into jerky. Then you pulverize it into what looks like sawdust, and then you take and stir it in liquefied fat. I made some from a buffalo I killed when I wrote my buffalo book. I made pemmican from that, and I was st- and I had it in my fridge just as an experiment. I kept it for seven years.
0: A survival food that can last fifty years. But
1: that's not pemmican. It's not. It Doesn't look like it. it. Looks like jerky sticks because it's not pulverized. People just now start all of a sudden calling like. I'm not things. saying everybody messes hardly everybody messes up, but it's like a thing that gets messed up. So, um, what was I getting at? What Were you asking about? No, I was asking about. No, I never dehydrate. Food. I never dehydrate a bunch of different things and combine it into a recipe that I then bring with me. Um, the reason I like the reason I use dehydrated food, and a lot of backpack hunters use dehydrated food, is because um, if you have a a, a, a dish made up of dehydrated ingredients. They have different hydration times. Okay? So, if you do beans, like like a piece of meat is going to be digestible to you. A piece of dehydrated meat that's then hydrated is going to be digestible to you. A dehydrated bean might take 30 or 40 minutes before it's going to be in the condition that doesn't rip you apart. <laughs> like, if you want to fuck yourself up, Eat straight dried beans.
0: What happens? Just it's, it's like just, rocks. you're off.
1: Yeah, you don't know your stomach doesn't know what to do with it, man. Well, it knows wow. what to do with it. it. Starts producing voluminous amounts of uh, gas. Right? Ooh. It's off. It's horrible. But with with if you cook, if you take food and cook it to a ready to eat state, and then freeze dry it, it it uh. You can rehydrate it kind of like simultaneously if you do everything right. Now, it wouldn't work with like a hamburger, right? If you dehydrated a hamburger and then you add water to it, you're going to wind up with a soggy-ass bun. So the trick is like finding things that are going to, in a hot water bath, are going to all come back to life kind of at the same time. But places that make backpack food out of just dehydrated but not freeze-dried ingredients is a recipe for disaster. Really? Some people like that shit, but for day-in, day-out consumption, um, I'm a freeze-dry man. <laughs> <laughs> and is freeze-dried something
0: you could do at home?
1: You'd have to buy a sublimation chamber, so no. What is a
0: sublimation chamber? What does that look
1: it's like? It's a chamber in which sublimation—you know what it looks like? It looks no. like the looks like a submarine. Really? A small, but it's very heavy-duty. Because what you're doing is you're taking, you're taking food, you take ready-to-eat foods, and freeze it. Right. And then you put it into a sublimation chamber and pull a very strong vacuum on it. And the air pressure gets to a point where the liquid sublimates and goes directly to a gaseous state. And you condense it on another surface inside the chamber. But it's out of the food. Then you take the food out and it's like glass. Wow. You can shatter it. That's freeze-dried food. But it rehydrates in a real nice way. I have heard we eat a lot of it because we do a lot of backcountry trips. I've heard everyone's complaints about it but it's like it, from my perspective which I will argue is a well-informed perspective it's like it's the lesser of two evils. It's not that bad. For day in day out consumption I think that the the companies that are do freeze dries it's just better in my opinion. Mm. Now when I say that these children were freeze dried I think some people you know people are going to challenge that because it's not technically freeze dried but uh, like a, a similar thing going on where they are Keeping their form, but shedding their water and, be, you know, shedding water, keeping their form and being
0: frozen and preserved for a long time. So, yeah, it's a trip. Because I was reading a podcast or reading a podcast, listening to a podcast, rather, where this guy was talking about how he's doing that with his own food for backpacking trips. Dehydrating it yeah, all. But sure, man. Why not? Things like Chili. Yeah. Things along those lines. Is but he guess, cooking
1: chili and then dehydrating or just yeah. dehydrating the components?
0: I think dehydrating the components. I think he was talking about dehydrating the meat and dehydrating yeah. pasta, like like something, you know, like uh, taking some meat with sauce yep. and then putting it together with a pasta.
1: Now, my brother one time, he, he's a very uh, frugal man. Uh, he no, That's not the right word. He just hates uh, to see food go to waste. He one time had a bunch of roommates and they all moved out and left a ton of rice and he got sick of cooking rice. 'Cause it take too long. He cooked all the rice and then spread it out on sheets and dehydrated it in his dehydrator and 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 reverse engineered instant rice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's insane. Does it take that long? What does rice take? Like twenty minutes? It Dude, seems I, I, like it takes yeah, more yeah, time well, to I, do I, that. You have to talk to him. So this is the same guy. <laughs> Is this the same guy that found the hobo's underwear and stole it? Yep, and the same guy that um,
1: <laughs> one time our, our dear late friend uh, was getting married, and uh, his bride, his bride it, the wedding was at his bride-to-be's house, and a neighbor was away on vacation. And the neighbor that was away on vacation said, you know, since we're out of town, if you guys want to use our home for some of your wedding guests go ahead. And so all the groomsmen were lodged up in this house of this man. We didn't know who was the neighbor of his wife's parents. And, uh, I don't know why, but my brother got to snooping around in this guy's freezer and found that he had had, he had a bull elk in there that had been in there for seven years. And he had like this crisis, this moral crisis where he's trying to figure out, is it morally worse to steal or morally worse to allow this man to waste this meat.
0: How long was a bull? Will bullock stay good if you freeze it?
1: You're fucking pushing it at seven years. Seven years. You. Like what is what is like
0: commonly agreed upon? It depends who you ask. If you ask me, the way I trim,
1: the way I cut, trim and wrap, I don't even blink at two years. Two years is fine. Yeah, the way I cut, but, trim and wrap. But when you start seeing four years, you get a little weird. Well, a thing that. I don't let it go. I've never even done it. I would have to think it's going to start to go because the texture, the texture will change. The texture will change. Um, Seven years. There's two things going on. One, you're borderline and two, you're starting to get the idea that this guy isn't going to eat that thing.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So he weighed it out in his head. And when he left, he had a bunch of that meat with him and took him home and ate it because he just hated to see a a elk go to waste. How did it taste? Seven years? Don't remember. We had to ask him.
0: Wow, but his
1: standard of good is different than your standard of good. <laughs> his standard of good is acceptable in cases like that. So that it, is
0: a weird crisis, though.
1: It makes sense. But he, throughout his whole life, he always is running into these situations like where he just like cannot. Um, he cannot let food go to waste. So he's if I talk to him right now, there's probably 10 more things like that that have happened to him since I talked to him (laughs) last where he's like when he found like he found in his alleyway one time and he's living in Montana and still is Montana, living in Bozeman, found in his alleyway like a discarded, a discarded cash from a homeless man and and ate all that guy's food. (laughs) And he was a Ph.D. candidate at the university.
0: You grew up with him,
1: yeah, so I remember oh, time you understand time, him the first time he, he here's where he kind of like where not where it came from, but he drew a bear tag when we were in Michigan and it was hard to get a bear tag at the time, and he drew a bear tag and the only way to hunt bears in the u p is like you know you're not you're not gonna spot and stalk on them because it's flat ground and you can't see shit right you know, you're gonna use dogs or you're gonna use bait or you never you're not gonna see a bear um So he started a bait pile, and the way he was feeding his bait pile ahead of the season was just dumpster diving. So as he's dumpster diving, it's like he's living off, not only is he baiting the bear with the dumpster food, but he's like living off the dumpster diving food that he found too, because he like discovered his great richness. Oh I remember my him? God. He found I'm not saying he found this big <laughs> box of boxes of expired bugles. You know those little crackers? Yeah. That people like put cheese with shoot cheese with into the open end of that bugle, and I even got a picture of him. He just walking the walk through the woods with boxes of bugles under his arm. And get out, and he'd be, like, dumping them out for the bear and then just eating the bugles, too. And then he'd oh. walk back with a handful of bugles just hates to see wasted food. His old girlfriend had a job cooking, like, the brown food in the Albertsons, you know, like, the display case where they fry all those, like, burritos and shit. Mm-hmm. And um, they were, she was bringing all that home, and they were living off the, the food that was going to the garbage. And they came to her and said, you can't steal this food, and then she started stealing it quietly. Wow. He can't stand to see food go to waste.
0: Well, that's probably noble.
1: You know, what's extra nice is he works for the USDA. So it's good to know that a person like that is involved in, um, you know, is at least in the room with people who are thinking about food systems. (laughs) (laughs) Is it good? it seems like he'll fucking eat anything. <laughs> Dude, he will. He's on a different level. I mean, on a different level of toughness and shit. You know? He's the guy whose arm is shrinking because remember I was trying to hook you up with? Yes. Because yeah. he's got a muscle. Yeah, got, yeah.
0: Did he do anything about that? Nope. Oh, Jesus. That's not good. Nope. Once you get that atrophy, it's uh, very tough to get it back. The way his nerves regenerate takes a long time. It's like a half an inch a year.
1: He chronicles its decay by taking a... He's got a 30-pound uh, kettlebell, and he, he was chronicling his decay by watching how many—it's his tricep. So counting how many tricep curls he could do with that kettlebell with one arm and one with the other, and I think the last time we were talking to him, it was 30 or something like 30 on one side and 10 on the other side.
0: Oh, Jesus. That's bad. So uh, that's a neck issue then. He's That's like a C3 or C4 or something like that. He's gone. Yeah, I shouldn't nerve. say he's
1: gone. No, he hasn't. I shouldn't say he hasn't done anything about it. He's probably, if he listens to this, he's probably you, cringing because
0: he would feel that he has. But um, tell him if he's listening. <laughs> There's a couple things you need to do. If it's, it seems to me like it's a neck issue because uh, when when you start getting like, elbows and things uh, where your arm starts uh, atrophying, usually it's a cervical disc, which is somewhere up in here. Um, what what he should do is get a neck decompression device. They're very they're inexpensive. They hook over a door. You put it on with Velcro. You strap it, and I have one. Uh, it it hangs on the thing. It's like you're hanging yourself by your chin, see, making see some if you can room find. in there for all those nerves. Exactly, and well, same principle as these toes spreading out, and then other also toes smashing up you can kind of soft tissue stretch out your neck and decompress all those areas. A lot of people have it from bad posture, a lot of people have it from athletics, I got it from jujitsu. Um, from all this, you know getting your neck yanked on see that thing right there that, that lady has yeah man. That's a shitty one because that one's working on a bag of water that doesn't work with a neck like mine You need you need to be able to hang You need to hang a rhino on the other yeah, end I had a I have a thing where I go like this click 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 and then I let myself hang from my neck and um, The more it's just like that just like that see how that guy's just sitting there Reading Reading a a magazine. Yeah. And you can adjust that. So there's a little uh, cord. It's tough to see in this photo. But there's a cord you pull, sort of like a plunger on one of those old school toilets. You pull that click, 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 click. See how he's pulling it right there? Yeah. And then you just relax. And you just got to learn how to go with it and sort of relax. And it feels weird at first because there's a lot of pressure. But it's pulling your neck. Literally pulling your neck. You can feel sometimes when I'm really relaxed, I feel like pop. I feel like something Pop. Little tissue separations in there. Does it
1: have? Do you feel that it's gotten better long term?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And it feels like really relaxing. Like after it's over, I feel like ah, oh, I feel like it just takes a weight off you. No shit. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a tremendous amount. I think sitting is terrible. These these seats that we're in right now are exceptional because they're ergonomic chairs. If you and, use them right. If you use them right. Yeah. I'm pretty cautious about sitting up straight, but uh, from back injuries, I've been very very cautious about. Uh, working out all the muscles around my back which yeah. i didn't really i just worked out and i figured those things would take care of themselves now i treat them as like uh, just like brushing my teeth like my spinal column and all, all those supporting muscles in the spine those are huge they need they need to be exercised and especially if you do anything like you guys pack out a lot of weight yeah that's a big one and um I feel that's like where he feels that uh, he a different where he had sciatica Right, that's lower. That's a lumbar issue. Yeah, that issue. was a
1: different thing. But he, he, he knows, he like traces that uh, to a specific animal.
0: That he's packing out. Yeah. Makes sense. Because sciatica is, what sciatica is, is a disc that's bulging. Meaning the disc, the p- soft tissue in between the two hard bones is pushing out and it's pressing up against the nerve. And uh, it causes pain that shoots down your ass and your lower legs. And a lot of people don't even recognize it as a lower back issue because maybe their back is not really that painful, but the leg and the ass is painful. Like, what the fuck is going on here? I had a similar issue with my neck where it was pushing on my ulnar nerve, and I was getting this elbow pain. And I was like, fuck, this really hurts. Like, down my arm and in the back of my tricep. And then I started getting numbness in my fingers, and that's when I started figuring out what was going on. Then I went to a doctor. I went to a chiropractor first, which is a fucking giant mistake. I spent a year. But do you not believe in chiropractors? I don't believe in chiropractors at all. I think it's 98% horseshit. That's what I think. And I don't know. But I think chiropractors that are smart... They incorporate things that I think are beneficial cold laser, massage, a lot of different things. But I think that manipulation that they do, unless yeah. you have like some sort of significant scoliosis or something they're attempting to slowly put back into position, I think most of the time it's just popping your neck and it just feels good. But I just like in an immediate sense. I went to a guy that's a very nice guy and he was trying to tell me that I didn't have a bulging disc because he was pushing down on the top of my head and it didn't hurt. I'm like, okay. So I was listening to him. I listened to this guy for like a fucking year. I had treatment with him. And I still had these neck problems and back problems. Then finally I got an MRI. And they're like, yeah, you got a bulging disc. And I remember being angry. I remember being angry. Because I was angry that I was being treated by someone who was a professional that really didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. And they were treating something that was a significant issue that I was experiencing. A real deterioration of my function, uh, pain, I wasn't able to do jujitsu correctly. There was a lot of a lot of problems that I was dealing with that I was like, Well what the fuck is this? Like how do-? and then I started talking to doctors about it and when you have a bulging disc, man, they wanna cut you open like like you're a pinata and you got gold inside well, of it. Well that's you.
1: a thing that my bro is talking about is the procedure? he's very nervous about a procedure that he could or could not do.
0: Well, for some people, it's not a bad move, depending on whether or not your brother's willing to do all the different things that can. But he's got a lot of atrophy already, which is a real bad thing. It's noticeable. Yeah, that's not good because that shit doesn't grow back. Yeah. Boss Rutten has it real bad. Uh, Boss Rutten, former UFC heavyweight champion, <clears throat> he fucked his neck up and uh, went through a bunch of different treatments and then eventually wound up getting it uh, fused. He's got, a, a, I believe, two discs and maybe more. In his neck fused together, where he doesn't have any disc tissue. They just screw the bones in together and remove the disc tissue and stabilize the area. But his right arm is significantly smaller than his left arm, yeah. to the point where he calls it baby arm. And this is a former UFC heavyweight champion of the world. And uh, what's ironic is that some of it came from fighting, but the last thing came from doing a stunt on Sons of Anarchy. He was uh, in some sort of a fight, I believe of Sons of Anarchy. Some sort of a fight scene where they were you know, doing something and some guy was supposed to like, throw him on the ground. And he landed on his head. So, all that actual fighting, and then you get fucked up pretend yeah. fighting. Yeah, <laughs> is that hilarious? Dude, yeah. And it's bad, man. I mean, he's, it's slowly starting to come back, but I've known Boss to have this issue for. Uh, we, we worked together on a movie before my seven year old daughter was born, and he had the issue then. And so, for seven years. And still had, now does. And it still does. Yeah. It's come back slowly. But what I'm talking about is, like, I think there's some, the, like, the way that your nerves regenerate is extremely slow. They can deteriorate quickly. Like, the atrophy can happen pretty quick. But the way it regenerates is extremely slow. So, they say, once you have atrophy, you're fucked. Like, you got to act on it right away.
1: That's the thing they told me when I had Lyme disease is that... Um a thing that fucks you up is the nerve damage. Yeah, and then people, people, a lot of people go on to think that they always have it, but they're like, "You had a thing. It's treated. It's gone, but it'll live with you for so long because of the damage to your nerves. It's just not. It's so slow to recuperate."
0: I talked to a doctor about Lyme disease, and he said it's not just a Lyme disease that you're dealing with. He said Lyme disease is this overall term. He said you can get a tick that has. 100 pathogens in it.
1: When you look at that list of shit it gets scary.
0: It's scary as fuck and they connected it to Morgellons. You know what Morgellons is? No. Morgellons is a disease that a lot of times they think is psychosomatic because there's some sort of a neurotoxicity involved in Lyme disease and all these people that have Morgellons uh, almost without a doubt have Lyme disease as well and what Morgellons is is they have, they start itching at themselves and they think they have fibers growing out of their body and they start hallucinating well, most, most of the time it's treated as a psychosomatic disorder. Like they'll get carpet fibers in their body and they'll claim these carpet fibers are coming out of their body and growing out of their skin. Yep. But I talked to this doctor who was the only lucid person that sort of explained it to me because he's a doctor and he has Morgellons. And he was saying, and he also has Lyme disease. And he says like to a person, they all have Lyme disease. Uh, that he's encountered at least. But he was saying that he was looking at himself in the mirror and he saw something moving across the surface of his eye and he knew it was a hallucination. And he realized it was a hallucination as a doctor, as an educated man of medicine, and still was seeing it and was freaking out. And then that, and then he realized like, oh, there's some sort of an extreme neurotoxic effect that this stuff has. Yeah. And, and then he started doing like some pretty deep investigation into what constitutes Lyme disease. And he's like, well, it's not like you know, you know, you have herpes, you know? No, it's not like that. It's like, you get bit by something. You got a bunch of shit in that cocktail of whatever that disgusting tick is carrying around. And it's variable. You know, you might get it from one part of the East Coast and it has, you know, 50 things. You might get it from another, it has 13 things. Yeah. And, but he's saying with the people that have more jellons, what he believes is they're suffering from hallucinations brought on by Lyme disease.
1: That's, that's a thing about Lyme that I found was... Um about medicine and about people and about mysterious diseases is like I quit doing it now, but I would get in arguments with people where like I was trying to deal with it and finding out about it. And people were telling me like, Oh, well, here's what's happening to me. I'm like, well, no, I was told that's not how it works because there's so much, uh, the same thing you, you bring up earlier about a doctor or a chiropractor telling you the wrong thing. There's so much, um, subject subjectivity in the fucking medical world. Yeah. That it's like on one hand, all these people are sort of going through this, uh, this regimen, this educational regimen, which is, you know, it's like there's like government oversight. There's certain criteria you need to meet. Right. Things you need to pass. And you think it would sort of like have this unifying effect. But people come out on the other end who've gone through kind of the same educational system telling you fucking wildly different shit. Yeah, wildly different shit. About the problems where one guy, like, you could walk in, one guy's going to, like, do a surgery, and the next guy's like, oh,
0: no way. Yeah. Who was it that Dude, had it's the like, cyst it's just like in his balls? Who was it? it? wasn't Steve-O, right? Who the fuck was it?
2: Oh, that, that just said that, uh, Santino, yeah. I think.
0: Andrew Santino. Yeah. He was telling me that he went to he had a cyst in his balls and he thought he had ball cancer. Went to a doctor and one doctor told him that he has excess cum stored up in his balls. That it's sperm. That's stored up in his balls, and that's what's causing this knot. He went home to his wife and said, Listen. He went to another doctor. No, he wasn't married at the time. <laughs> <laughs> he was a young man. He went this to another come doctor. come to a head. <laughs> and the second doctor said, who the fuck is that doctor? That guy should lose his ability to practice. Like, you don't get cum stored up in your balls, and it makes some sort of a knot. Like, he's like, that's insane. Who told you this? And yeah. a fucking real practicing doctor told him that.
1: Yeah, I used to go into it when I was younger. I'd go into it and thinking it was like going to, it was like going to get an oil change, right? That, right. Like you could have twenty people and they're all going to change your oil like the same way. Yeah. Well, what we do is we drain it and put new shit in. I'm like, great. Now I realize it's a fucking roll of the dice, man. Roll the dice, and here's or, the or thing: you can try to change, to you can mitigate that by doing some
0: research. But it really is like, I don't know if the guy's going to tell me. He's not going to tell me the same thing their other guy's going to tell me. The well, big thing when it comes to health, and this is one of the things that I have a, a big problem with when it comes to anything dealing with the back, is preventative maintenance is like one of the most important things for back health. Where we're sitting in desks all day, and most people are not sitting up straight. They're not sitting. A good thing is like one of those balls, those gym balls, those big balance balls. Those are great to sit on because they force you to kind of stabilize yourself and use your core muscles or some sort of an ergonomic chair forcing you to stabilize. But doctors are not telling you, hey man, you gotta take a yoga class a couple days a week. Yeah. You gotta do something to straighten out your posture. You gotta do something to make sure that your spine is strong enough to be carrying your body. You can't slump forward because you're putting undue pressure on these different portions of your back. There's a significant amount of doctors are just not fucking telling you that. They're going like, oh yeah, your disc is bulging. We're gonna have to do a disectomy. No worries, it's outpatient, it's outpatient procedure. But they're not telling you, they're chopping off of a chunk of this finite material. There's a small amount of material that separates your disks. And when they talk about, oh, I have disk degenerative disorder. It's a disease. My disk, no, stop. It's not a disease. What's going on is you're compressing your body through weightlifting, through extreme exercise. Your body is slowly getting smushed down. You're not allowing it to recover. You're not stretching it out. You're not strengthening all those core muscles. You're not giving it some time off. You're probably engaging in the same damaging activity over and over again and toughing it out. If there's one thing you should never fucking tough out, it's a back issue. Anytime there's something going on with your back, don't tough it out. Don't try to work through it. Just don't. Because you're going to fuck it up worse, and then it's going to get to a point where it just does not recover, and then you're going to have to get surgery.
1: Yeah. Man, this is all. This is making me super self conscious about how I sit. I, really, I sit like Larry King, man. So when bad. I'm at a chair and I a desk. do. I,
0: I used to much more. I do try to sit up as much as I can now. But these chairs. I feel like every
1: time I've been here, I went away
0: for a couple of days trying to sit straighter. <laughs> after staring at you sitting all nice for three hours, I try, man. I didn't always used to be good at it. I used to slump quite a bit before I had back issues. Yeah, I got to catch up. These chairs are called uh, Capisco chairs. They're from Ergo Depot. Um, You can go to ergodepot.com and get these fucking things. They're the shit. They're they're comfortable enough to sit in, too. I've been on some of them where you your knees slide in and there's a pad against your shin. Yeah, those are kind of gross. These seem much more like an actual chair, but they're super comfortable. What's it called? It's called a Capisco. Sounds like a drink. I know. Ergodepot.com. No, they didn't pay me to say that. But uh, these things are the shit. Backs, man. Backs are the one thing. Like when people have these heavy pack outs, and everybody likes to pride themselves and I packed out 150 pounds, seven miles. Yeah. Don't. I'm prone. I'm prone to saying those kind of things. (laughs) I tell everybody, pack, take 75 and do it twice, please. And even that's a lot, man. I have this new thing. That's a good point. Why do people? Why do they like to talk about? Because they want to be badasses. Yeah, but you'd never be like, yeah, man, I jumped out in front of a truck and just jumped away right in time. <laughs> well, people love to tell their friends, too. You know Mike? He packed out two elk quarters on his back. Dude, Dude's a fucking savage. Like, oh, Mike's probably going to have no legs like, Dude's a fucking dumbass <laughs> His fucking legs are going to stop working yeah. He's probably like got a massive bulge in his back
1: He's No, gonna... I, I'm guilty i guilty because I uh, I traffic in those stories and when I hear those stories I'm like, right on bro uh, <laughs>
0: What? Well you know how hard it is, that's why When you've done a pack out, a real pack out you know how hard it is. I remember when we shot that mule deer right there in Montana and we only walked like what, was it two miles? Mm, Maybe? Yeah, And we had the meat split up between like three of us so it was probably only like 50 pounds on everybody's back and i was like holy shit once he finally got to camp two miles pretty pretty flat it wasn't that hilly
1: yeah if you're not accustomed to it it's fucking
0: a lot. exhausting
1: yeah, so if you're not accustomed to
0: getting bit by bees six times a day, it's overwhelming. So I should tell people that uh, the Outdoorsmans, I know a company that you you like their products yeah, yeah. as well. They make a, an Atlas Trainer now. It's a, a I saw you frame. were messing with that. It's fucking
1: great. And you got a weight you put on it. Yeah,
0: there. it's like an Olympic weight. It slides in like an <laughs> Olympic post yeah. and it clamps down. I thought maybe you rigged that up yourself. No, no, they're selling oh. it now. It's their thing. I saw that. Yeah, you
1: had that, I thought it was like you. I thought you'd like gone down to the hardware
0: store. <laughs> I, knew, well, I knew the frame, but I just didn't recognize. The I know guys do it, but usually they use sandbags. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. put sandbags in their backpack and get used to it. it makes a big difference, and it's an incredible workout. And it doesn't shift, it doesn't shift at all. And you can really lock it so down, so you're not in gonna place. like
1: you don't have the risk of like tweaking, right? Like it's right. strength, but it's not because when your shit's wiggling around, then it like I don't know, it doesn't like make you stronger, It just makes you more inclined to like fuck something up, yeah, to yeah. twist funny,
0: yeah. No, I agree, you know, but I just say implore people, just please just. Just exercise your back. Treat it like it's like brushing your teeth. Just take yoga. You don't have to take it, Ethan. Just get some YouTube videos. They're free. They're, they're available everywhere. Just just do something to strengthen your back. You will prevent... Most people don't want to listen to this, and they're not going to do it because people are lazy as fuck. Mm-hmm. But you will prevent a host of issues that people have just by exercising your back. Simple stuff. There, There's the Atlas trainer right there. Yeah, you could do chin-ups on it if you're a fucking savage. Look at this guy. It's an animal. But, um... Yeah, you could carry up to 90 pounds with that thing. So it'll take two, uh, bet it'll take 100-pound plates, too. I just don't know if the plate's designed for it, if the uh, pack, rather, is designed for it. That's a good idea to do pull-ups that some bitch on. Yeah. I use a weight belt. I put, like, a belt, and I hang a kettlebell in between my legs. I put a 50-pound kettlebell on a chain, and I do chin-ups like that. Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's hanging where?
0: It's right between my legs. Like, it's a big leather strap. But where do the straps fall across your legs? Right in between. Well, the straps are on my back or on my hip like this, and then there's like a chain in between my legs, and the kettlebell hangs in between my legs. But it's not getting your scrow at all. No, 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 no. no it's yeah. swinging low. It's swing. You got to make sure your legs are separated so it's not cracking against your knees, but yeah. you know when you're doing chin-ups, it's just hanging there. No shit. Yeah. They say that that's the best way to get more reps in with your chin-ups is not to try like 19, 20. The actually best way is do less, but with heavy weights do like uh you know put a weight vest on or hang a you know 70 pound kettlebell in between your legs just yeah i've grind never done that three or four yeah but again you run the risk of injury because it's a you're, you're maybe that's it.
1: why i've never done it
0: hey yeah you're putting a lot you got to build yourself up to it you know that's what also one of the big things that happens to people when they start exercising they just try to go too hard too. They quick. go to
1: full balls and so, yeah, it's a like yes i remember uh at various times not running for a long time and then be like yeah i'm gonna start running and go on a five mile run dude <laughs> <laughs> I've you been running now in. for
0: just a little over a month.
1: I got a friend who's a runner, and um, like he, he he's rec, you know a hobbyist, but runs marathons, and he never did before. But he was saying uh, he, he was t- he wrote a, he, he's a writer, so he's been writing about that a little bit. And he was saying he just wrote a piece about um, you don't run to get in shape; you got to get in shape then start running.
0: Yeah, it's a good idea. View.
1: It's a smart. Way he's to like, do there's it. some steps. There's some if you're just like a slob, right? There's some things you need to get taken care of <laughs> before right. you embark on that.
0: Smart. Like you there's, can do there's some ground damage. there's
1: groundwork yeah. that needs to be done. Yeah. To get ready for the run.
0: I talk to I don't like to ever discourage people from doing jujitsu, but I talked to a buddy of mine who just did jujitsu from he's forty three years of slovenly behavior no exercise whatsoever other than the occasional pickup basketball game for like seven years yeah and then he started doing jujitsu and immediately his body's falling apart i'm like okay i know this is going to be hard for you to do but if you really want to do it you got to get in shape first yeah just just push up start out with thumb wrestling and and gone into arm wrestling Steve Brunell, you got to get out of here. It's three fifteen. Listen, man, you got one of the best podcasts in the world. It's oh. fucking awesome. I love listening to it. I'm so happy you do it, and I think you got the best hunting show ever. So I, I, owe, I owe the podcast all to you, Joe Rogan. Well, listen, man, hanging out with you. Look, it's so easy for you. You you have so many great stories, and you're such a good talker. I was like, how the fuck does this guy not have a podcast? I'm glad you steered me in that direction. Thanks for the plug. I'm glad you're still doing it. It's called the Meat Eater Podcast. It's available everywhere and uh meat eaters available on netflix and uh right now it's only how many seasons do you guys seasons have five on? and six seasons five and six
1: yeah five and six we'll, we'll have more we got more we got uh you know a dozen episodes that are new that we're going to be releasing so just stay tuned and then i, I you know months ago back in uh, a couple months ago if you go to my instagram steven ranella you'll scroll back and find a bunch of pictures from you'll find a bunch of guyana photos
0: yeah amazing stuff from guyana
1: yeah like but we never even talked about oh we did talk about that yeah, yeah.
0: you'll find some pictures Good times. Thanks for doing this, man.